Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. <laughs> BFFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the Bald Face Truth. Well, everybody's talking about it. Everybody's talking about college football. Oregon State will be hosting Boise State on Saturday, Research Stadium, 26,407 expected there. A sellout of the Reduced capacity stadium. Meanwhile, in Atlanta, Mercedes-Benz Stadium. It'll be the defending national champion, Georgia Bulldogs. They'll be taking on Oregon and Dan Lanning in his first game. We'll be talking about Dan Lanning and hearing some of Dan Lanning's audio from his news conference last night. His, His game one presser, whatever you want to call it. I want to talk about Jonathan Smith as well. I did something strange this morning. I went back and I watched Jonathan Smith's introductory news conference from way long ago. Jonathan Smith showed up in December of 2017, coming off the heels of Gary Anderson's firing. Oh, no, not a firing. He quit. He would have been fired, probably. But he quit mid-season. And... 1-11 season for Oregon State without Gary Anderson down the stretch. But Jonathan Smith took over a program that was in a lot of trouble at the time. There was turmoil. People were wondering about, you know, what what it meant and and, uh, where it was going to be headed. He had a signing day coming up shortly after his hiring. He had to kind of prepare for it. He really wasn't prepared for it. But I remember Jonathan Smith's introductory news conference because it was unforgettable in a lot of ways. It was, you know, Jonathan Smith talking about the fit that he would be at Oregon State, how he knew what it was like to walk the halls of Callahan Hall, which was his dorm, and go to class on campus at Oregon State. And, you know, they went out in that subsequent season. They weren't very good. But here's some of Jonathan Smith talking about the swagger at Oregon State. Well, I say we did it, definitely had some swagger, but I think we had 20-some-odd penalties in that fifth yesterday. <laughs> so we're not trying to bring that kind of swagger back. Uh, Understandable. Yep. I did hear from a bunch of those guys, though, and I did. I go back to the memories made with them, and we had some some characters and and a bunch of fun and a bunch of competitive kids. And so we're going we're gonna to get back to being around some characters, but – guys in a very very good way he's talking about the fiesta bowl team that was highly penalized but also highly successful on the field during that news conference uh president at oregon state at the time edward ray gave a spirited uh endorsement of jonathan smith and he basically said look if you are going to come to research stadium and you don't bring your a game uh look out you know you know you're going to get your butt handed to you and uh, Ed Ray, I thought, was pretty good that day. It is not acceptable to be mediocre in the classroom. It is not acceptable to be mediocre on the field of competition. We strive for excellence in everything we do. 
And we need to be real with ourselves. Look at where we are. What do we expect going forward? What I expect us to move to very quickly is an understanding by anyone who comes here to compete with us to appreciate this is our house. And I've said it before. If you come here and don't bring your A game, we're going to hand your butt to you. And we have someone who knows how to do that. And he pointed over at Jonathan Smith. So here we are, all these seasons later, really four complete seasons in the book for Jonathan Smith. He is now coming off a bowl appearance last year, a seven-win season, an undefeated home record. They were 6-0 and at home. They were 1-6 and on the road or away from Reeser Stadium. And it's now time for Jonathan Smith to not only deliver on the we're going to hand your butt to you, that Ed Ray promised all those years ago, but it's time for him to start a season 1-0. It's going to be interesting, I think, to see what the environment is like at Research Stadium on Saturday. Half-full stadium, two really good football teams, Boise State coming in trying to prove that it belongs in the Pac-12 Conference. Uh, they'll have about 2,000 fans that will travel with them, so about 10% of the capacity I expect to look uh, like Bronco Nation. But I think... It's good. I think it really does line up to be an opportunity for Jonathan Smith to seize on what Ed Ray was saying there. Whose house is it? You know, whose season is it? Will Oregon State start this 2022 campaign the way that it sort of uh, exemplified uh, 2021 and exemplified home excellence? Will they start with a win? Can they? Can they do what a team at Oregon State has not done? Since Mike Riley was coach, oh, seven, eight years ago, and win a home opener. And, uh, and that's what really Jonathan Smith is facing on Saturday at home in a really big game, I think, for Oregon State. Everybody can point to week two in Fresno State, or they can say, hey, week three, they're playing a game in Portland against Montana State. But if you are a college football fan, not just in this state, but across the Pac 12 footprint, you're looking at Oregon State and you're going, hey, this is supposed to be a step-forward year for you, and I think Jonathan Smith's got the experience on the defensive side of the ball. He uh, supposedly has the talent. He's got a quarterback he trusts. He's got a stable of running backs, including Deshaun Fenwick and, and Damian Martinez that are supposed to be uh, fantastic. Trey Lowe in that backfield as well. I think they'll use him in a multitude of ways. But let's see what Oregon State is about on Saturday. And meanwhile, in the earlier game on Saturday on uh, ABC with – Georgia and Oregon playing. Look, I really, I, I don't want to give in on this. I feel like or, like Oregon can play with Georgia in this game, and maybe I'm nuts. Maybe they get boat raced. Maybe they get embarrassed. Maybe Dan Lanning just isn't ready in week one, game one. Maybe his coordinators, Kenny Dillingham, especially on the offensive side of the ball, aren't ready for the Georgia defense. Maybe they're going to find out, hey, look, uh, you know, we stuck our nose in here and we got punched in the face. But I feel like Oregon can play in this game. I feel like, you know, as I've looked at this game for weeks and weeks and weeks and months and months and months, my initial assessment of this game has not changed. Oregon's got great defensive experience coming back, including Noah Sewell uh, and Justin Flo. Uh, they have an offensive line that won't embarrass itself against that Georgia defense. They got a quarterback in Bo Nix who's been in big games. Like, maybe he doesn't have the talent to be a top-flight SEC quarterback, but he certainly has the experience uh, of SEC battle-tested games, and so I don't expect that 
Bo Nix is going to walk in there wide-eyed and be phased by the stage. He's seen this uh, multiple times. So I kind of look at this game, and I keep coming back to uh, coming back to a reality. I just think Oregon plays within the point spread. I think they cover. And I know people are going to say, oh, you know, that is such a fallback. That is such so lame to lower the expectations. I'm not lowering the expectations. I expect Oregon to be in this game. In the third and fourth quarter, I expect to be sitting on the edge of my seat watching Oregon play against Georgia and seeing what Dan Lanning's program's about. I mean, look, I have a friend who says this all the time. He says he's big on first impressions. And you hear a lot of people will talk about first impressions and, you know, how it's important and you go to a job interview. That's why you want to dress well. You want to make a good first impression. You want to make a good first impression on a date, whatnot. You're meeting the in-laws for the first time. You want to make a good first impression. And the point that my friend makes with first impressions is he says, look, it's incredibly difficult to overcome a bad first impression. You can be done, but it takes a lot of work. And even if you subsequently do great things, often when, what people remember about you is the first experience that they had with you. So it's important, I think, with Dan Lanning to come into this game and for Oregon to present well, to look like it's prepared, to look like it can uh, you know, be a 10-win team this season, offensively to look creative, not stifled and smothered and in a straitjacket like the Oregon offense has looked for years under Mario Cristobal and his coordinators. So I'm really interested to see what Lanning's team looks like, how he conducts himself, all of that stuff. What are you interested to see? I want to hear from you. We're going to hear from Chip Towers of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution coming up at 3.30, bottom of the hour. But in the meantime, it's your turn. I said what I'm looking to see. I want to hear what you're looking to see at 503-417-7575. Game one, week one, here we are. What do you want to see from the Beavers if you're a Beaver fan? What do you want to see from the Ducks if you're a Duck fan? If you're a Husky fan or a Cougar fan, I'll entertain it as well because this show does bring in listeners across the footprint, and I know we have people living in our region who are fans of USC and UCLA and Colorado and Utah and Arizona and Arizona State and Stanford and Cal. So what do you want to see from these teams in the opening week of the season? Because there's only three games in the Pac-12 in the opening week where I feel like we're going to learn something. Like, I don't think we're going to learn something with Washington playing Kent State. I don't think we're going to learn something with UCLA suiting up against Bowling Green. I don't think we learn a lot in those games. Uh, you know, frankly, I think Washington State-Idaho is another one. But the three games that I feel like we're going to learn something, it's Utah-Florida. We're going to learn something about Utah in that opening game. It's Oregon and Georgia. We're going to learn something about Dan Lanning and his Ducks. And it's Boise State-Oregon State. We're going to learn something about Jonathan Smith and this Oregon State season. He's got to start fast, doesn't he? 503-417-7575. You get the floor. What are you looking for? I want to hear from you. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Chip Towers coming up uh, bottom of the hour. But I want to know from you, uh, what are your expectations when it comes to Oregon, Georgia? What are your expectations? What do you want to see when it comes to Oregon State, Boise State? It wasn't that long ago that the great president at Oregon State, Dr. Edward Ray, laid down the gauntlet when he told uh, the Beaver fans that they would kick your butt. Turn my computer up. 
Uh, they would kick my butt. You'll kick your butt if you don't show up to play. Turn the computer up. Okay, never mind. Steven, what's on your mind? <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, is that is the computer turned up on your board? It is, yeah. It should Weird. be Weird, it's not playing. Interesting. And a great cut. Hmm. Anyways, yeah. let it fly. I, so I'll play a cut here. Uh, it was actually from your show yesterday. Uh, you know, you, we were talking about what game is more important to the Pac-12 landscape, Oregon, Georgia, Oregon State, Boise State. And Mike Prater, you had on from Boise, he made this comment yesterday, and it really stuck with me because I feel like both fan bases, one of them is going to be set up for such disappointment, right? I think all the Oregon State fans think that they're going to win. I think all Boise State fans think they're going to win. And Mike Prater said this about if Andy Avalos loses, just kind of like the pressure that's going to be on him. Right now, I just think he needs to win this football game. If he loses this football game, he, he could lose this season. And I don't want to get overly dramatic, but the fans here are that fickle. They want big-time postseason games. They want bowl games. They want nice opponents at the end of the season. They want nice, shiny things. And uh, you've got to beat Oregon State to make that happen. Like they, I feel like they, Boise State is taking this as a must-win situation already for this yeah. first game of the season against Oregon State. And I think Oregon State is kind of having the same thing, right? They have a tough non-conference schedule with Boise State and Fresno State. It's kind of a must-win for Oregon State to get on that right track, as we've talked about Jonathan Smith said the goals to get to Vegas in the Pac-12 title game. I think both teams have high expectations, and one of these fan bases is going to go away with a, you know very sad and empty-hearted after this game on Saturday. It's interesting to look at kind of the history of Boise State football over the years. Andy Avalos, the latest coach in, but you know he lost five games last season. He went seven and five. Um, it was a disappointing season by Boise State standards. Um, you have to go back, you know, that you know, in 2013, they lost five games. It was an eight and five season. Uh, before that, you go back to 1998. To, you know, so they've only it, since 1998, they've only lost five or more games twice. And last time, last time it happened was last season. So I think there are a lot of fans who are used to losing two or three games a year, and that's pretty much what Boise State has done. You know, they go twelve and two, they go ten and three, they go eleven and three, they go ten and three, they go nine and four, they go twelve and two. I mean, those are their seasons. So we have a five loss season. I think you come into the, you know, ensuing campaign a little bit stressed out about, you know, what does an opening loss, what does an O and one record mean? And I think, you know, if we wanna say which of these two programs more desperately needs the win, it's Andy Avalos and Boise State in week one. Uh, and I think Oregon State, Oregon State's two-and-a-half-point favorite in this game. I think Oregon State's going to win the game, and I think there's a chance that Oregon State wins the game going away, but I, I kind of feel like some of the shine has come off Boise State. Is is that reading too much into just maybe one bad season in in the early tenure of Andy Avalos? Yeah, I mean, that's the, old, that's the ultimate question is, is it a one-year one year off that they just had this bad year to do transition with the new coach, or... Is it something else? Is it something deeper and the recruiting's gone down? Something like that. Sean Sean had something to say. Here we go. Yeah, I, I think just Chris Peterson uh, just doesn't get enough credit for the coach that he was. Obviously retired now, but what he did at Boise State, what he did at Washington, turned both of them into national powers. And I think ever since the Chris Peterson era in Boise, they've came back to life a little bit, probably more of what they should be as a program. One of the best teams in the Mountain West, uh, maybe a top 25 team on a better year, but you know, it's Boise State at the end of the day. I think Brian Harson's a good coach, and I think Andy Avalos is a good coach, but I really think it was Chris Peterson that did the magic there. They, I thought, you know, it's been interesting to watch them. BYU and San Diego State, I think, 
last season really did uh, disrupt the Pac-12 conference. And within the Mountain West, it's interesting because when I look at Boise State's season, you know, they started last year, they lose at UCF in the opener. And, uh, you know, people went, well, it's Central Florida, they're coming off a good year, whatnot. But then in week three, they lost to Oklahoma State. It's not a bad loss. But, it, you know, fifth week of the season, they lose to Nevada. Unranked Nevada gets them. Tough loss for them. Two weeks later, Air Force, unranked, gets them. Um, you know, they lost to San Diego State late in the year as well in you know and it was not a uh, not a good win they, they did not play in the bowl game they decided not to play in their bowl game they end up with a seven and five season by Boise State standards to your point Sean it's not a Chris Peterson season it uh, isn't a Brian Harson season that was Andy Avalos season and a lot of people were uh, upset by that because it was Andy Avalos's first season and first opportunity to make that first impression that we talked about in the opening segment. What are you guys looking for from the Ducks and the Beavers? Yeah, for me the Ducks and the the Ducks and the Bulldogs. Um yeah, I think Georgia I think Georgia's going to command the game. I, the thing I'm interested in most for Oregon is how does Bo Nix play? I know that he's he was a high recruit coming into Auburn. I know he was highly sought after in the transfer portal, but when I've watched him play, I've just never been sold on him being an elite quarterback. So what quarterback play if are you going to get out of Bo Nix if he is indeed the starter? I I don't expect much out of him. And so for that, how does Oregon score against Georgia? I think Oregon's defense is going to be great. I think they're going to be able to handle Georgia a little bit. But it's going to be a lot of pressure on that defense to make some plays to put Oregon offense in the right spots to make get easy scores. I just don't know that's going to happen. That's why I kind of like Georgia minus the points in this game. I just have no confidence right now in the Oregon offense, especially if Bo Nix is leading the way. I, yeah, nobody, nobody knows in openers, right? Openers, are you could sell either narrative. I'll buy that. But I'll also buy the idea that Georgia's going to have a bunch of guys on the field that haven't played before even though they're talented and highly recruited. Sean, go ahead. Yeah, I the thing I'm most excited about, I think, the just the key storyline is Justin Flo. I cannot wait to watch Justin Flo play football on Saturday for the first time in what feels like really ever uh, in an Oregon jersey besides that Fresno State game. Uh, I agree. I think the defense is going to hold their own. I think one aspect that deserves to be talked about more is that Oregon has a really strong offensive line. They return basically all five, and I feel like their offensive line is going to be able to play in this game. So I, I don't know if Bo Nix is going to be under duress. It's more the skill guys that if you're a Duck fan, you should be concerned about, in my opinion. The skill guys are talented, and I think they have a lot of upside compared to the past skill guys, but they're all kind of seeing the field for the first time as starters for the most part. I'm wondering how they're going to play. I think it should make you feel a little bit better considering there's some older guys that they brought in through the portal, but still it's a lot of younger guys who don't have a ton of experience at the running back, wide receiver, tight end spots. Well, and John, you talked yeah. about this also. You know, At the practices, there's a lot of interceptions, a lot of fumbles being, being caused. And you said first impressions with Dan Lanning, right? You don't want that to be your first impression. But if Oregon comes out and they're turning the ball over, that's going to be a bad look for the Oregon coaches staff in that first game. I just remember early in the Willie Taggart era, you know, Oregon it might have been their first possession. It might have been their first series on offense. They had to call a timeout before even calling a play. Like they got possession of the ball. And they had to call a timeout. You know, I remember the Taggart era started with a kickoff return, so it might have been the subsequent offensive possession. But um, you know, and then Mario Cristobal, same thing. Game one, early in his tenure, we saw some things that were concerning. Uh, you know, they had some game management issues uh, against Stanford in that first conference game, and all of a sudden we were going like, "Hey, does this guy need some help?" And I remember that first season for Mario Cristobal talking a lot about. You know, does he need to hire 
a experienced head coach on his staff to kind of sit on his shoulder a little bit during the games because, you know, frankly, what I think we ultimately learned about Mario Cristobal is that he was a control freak and he wanted to control the offense. He wanted to control to some extent with the defense. He was, you know, on both headsets all the time. He was, you know, micromanaging, I think, a lot of things. And now we're watching Anthony Brown Jr. and we're watching Justin Herbert shine in the NFL and we're going, okay, where was that at Oregon? So I, I want to see Dan Lanning delegate and I want to see Kenny Dillingham's offense look like, you know, it doesn't get possession of the ball. Let's say Georgia goes three and out on the first series and punts the ball away. I don't want Oregon to get possession of the ball, line up, and then call timeout. We saw that in the Taggart era. We saw it in the Cristobal era. And it was symptomatic to me of we're not organized. We don't have our stuff together. We haven't quite figured some things out game management-wise. So I want to see the little things like that, like the procedural stuff, not be a distraction in game one, game two, game three uh, for for uh, Dan Lanning. Now, I said Ducks, Beavers. What do you guys want to see from the Beavers? Uh, for me, I want to see the Beavers win this game, right? I think that just it's so simple, but – they haven't won an opening game in such a long time, and it's against a good Mount West team, right? A team that is respected, you know, around the nation as being one of the top mid majors uh, programs in the nation. They were projected to uh, win their side, their division in the Mount West this season. And we talk about teams that want to get to the Pac-12. You know, Boise State is a team that wants to get to the Pac-12. San Diego State wants to get to the Pac-12. I think it's a big game for them as well. So I think both teams are just going to be motivated, ready to go. And if Jonathan Smith and the Beavs want to take that next step, I think they got to win games like this. Right, If they want to start getting to be a Pac-12 contender, try to get to Vegas, they have to be able to beat teams in the Mountain West. So just for me, it's so simple of can they get on the board and get that one no start because they have, have not had it in so long. I think that can get some uh, momentum rolling for the Beavs down in Corvallis. Yeah, for me, I, I want to see a big improvement from Chance Nolan. Like Chance Nolan was the starting quarterback last year, but you know they were a run-heavy team last year, and they obviously lost – B.J. Baylor, they still have a good O-line, but you know the running backs probably aren't as good of a strong suit this year. I want to see Chance Nolan be able to air it out. I mean, I've listened to some Jonathan Smith's press conferences. He says Nolan has improved a lot this year. That's why he was named the starter. I also think he has some weapons. Uh, specifically, I think Musgrave is due for a big year. And, you know, I want to see them be able to air it out and be a little bit more of a, uh, a two-way offense this year. As, you know, they were the best rushing team in the Pac-12 last year, or at least one of them. They couldn't air it out as well last year. Is there a scenario, guys, that Oregon State loses week one, but you come away feeling good about them? Not in my mind. Not in my mind. And that's 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 why I'm being so simple about it. Like, I don't care if it's a bad win. If the Beavs win and it's ugly, I'll be happy if you're a Be- I'd be happy if I was a Beavs fan. But if they lose this game, that's not the right step you want to take, right? And even if it's close, even if they play good defense or they play good offense and they lose, that's not a step in the right direction. I think right now... Jonathan Smith has laid down the foundation of what he wants at his program, and now it's time to build some wins upon it, right? He got to a bowl game a season ago, which was great. Now can they build upon that momentum and keep getting more wins? I think that's the next step. I I I think think there's a scenario. I do think there's a scenario. If this game's like, you know, maybe overtime, it's super close, maybe Boise State just looks good and, you know, Oregon State loses super close, I could see myself walking away from that game and thinking, all right, Boise State won, but I thought Oregon State fought really hard and it was a a good game. Boise State's just a little bit better than I thought they were. We thought they were. The only way I could walk away from an Oregon State game on Saturday where they lose and feel okay about it is if there was some extenuating circumstance, like, you know, Pac-12 officials, you know, host the Beavers again, or, you know, they misspotted the ball, or Boise State got five downs. Because I I tend to agree with Steven here. I was really disappointed with Oregon State's performance in the L.A. Bowl. 
I thought they went down there against a Utah State team that, you know, really was playing for a lot and, you know, it had a good season, but I felt like Oregon State laid an egg in that game. I don't know how you guys felt about that game, but Chance Nolan wasn't great in that game. Utah State was better. Oregon State defensively just didn't look very good. Uh, I was really disappointed. I kept waiting for the Beavers to make plays. They never did. Um, and I and I kind of feel like they didn't finish well last year. Need to see them start well this year. Because if they don't start well, it's the same old Beavers. It's them playing from a position of weakness, playing from behind. They have done this for years and years. They did it last year. Probably should have won that game at Purdue last year. Uh, didn't get it done and then had to scramble back. But... I think they had a really nice season, but they didn't punctuate last season. I think it's time to punctuate it with an opener. Chip Towers of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's coming up. I'm going to ask him. It's a big game for the Ducks and Dan Lanning, his first game. How big is this football game for Georgia? We go to enemy territory next. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Chip Towers, uh, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, covers Georgia football. We've had him on the show uh, a couple of times already. Um, we're game week now, Chip. It's, it seems like there's been just a huge buildup for this game with all the Dan Lanning talk. But uh, what's the what's the scuttlebutt in Georgia right now? Well, you know, it is starting to build up. I would agree with you there because, I mean, you kind of watched as the perspective on Oregon improved and it improved. Uh throughout the preseason to where they ended up being ranked number 11 uh, in the AP preseason poll. Uh, the line's still pretty big, but, you know, last time I checked, when number 11 faces, you know, number three or four, whatever it is, number three for Georgia, um, that's a pretty good preseason matchup. And the truth is, you know, preseason, you just don't know. You just don't know. I, you think you know, but you, you never really know, and that's that's what makes this this in particular, with the uh, Lane Kirby Smart connection, one of the most intriguing in college football. Chip Towers writes for the Atlanta Journal Constitution, AJC.com. Uh, you can also catch him on Wednesday. He's doing a Facebook uh, show that he does uh, regularly throughout the season. Towers Take Live on Facebook, 9 a.m. Pacific time, if you want to get some Georgia talk in your life. Uh, Chip, give us an idea of, of, like, when you do that talk, you, you know, all the Georgia fans who are wringing their hands about the season are going to be calling in. What what position group are they talking about? What are the concerns right now? Well, I think what's start, starting to come out, and, and I have, uh, you know, helped, you know, sort of promote this narrative. I, I, I mean, I'll call it na- narrative, but, I mean, I mean, I think there's a really intriguing matchup here, in particular, you know, on, on the, you know, Oregon's offensive front versus Georgia's defensive front, and specifically interior front and linebackers, but Georgia's all new in that. Uh, Georgia's brand new, and Oregon is experienced, you know, on the offensive line in, in particular. You know, I've, I've seen all kinds of different numbers. You can probably tell me better than most, but, you know, nine of ten uh, of the ten guys, the two deep, have some starting experience, four of five returning starters, you know, a lot of experience, a lot of beef up there, and, uh, you know, they'll be facing – a new Georgia defensive front. Now, they'll have Jalen Carter, number 88, um, 
who's, you know, going to be tough to deal with. But all the other guys are new. And then probably most important is the, the inside linebackers are new. Now, they're, they were recruited for this specific purpose. Uh, you know, you're going to see a five-star, a couple of four-stars stepping in there to play for Georgia. Uh, and they've waited for this moment. But just being a game one, uh, you know, and certainly Dan Lanning knowing everything in the world about them, from a strength and weaknesses standpoint, personnel standpoint, you know, it's going to be it's going to be an intriguing watch. The Oregon, you know, coaching staff is not talking about who's going to start the game at quarter. I'll expect it to be Bo Nix. Didn't seem to bother Kirby Smart. How's that flying in, in Georgia territory? Well, you know, that was interesting because he's usually not that. Uh, uh, you know, I mean, for him to be blatantly, you know, blatant thing. Oh, we don't. We're not worried about that. We know who it's going to be. Uh, I, you know, normally when that narrative enters into a game week, you know, he'll say, uh, you know, we, we're preparing for them all, uh, and I'm sure they have. I mean, you know, uh, I, I, I buy what Dan Lanning has been selling in the preseason. Is they're going to have packages ready for all those quarterbacks, and maybe they'll have a special package for Ty Thompson or or somebody, you know, other than Bo Nix. But you know, when you look at it straight out. I mean, you know, what is it, 38 career starts for Bo Nix, three of them against Georgia, uh, and, and those other guys just haven't played that much. And so in a in an opening game with lots of lights and TV and, and everything else, you know, I would be shocked if it wasn't Bo Nix under center. Oregon going into this game, first-year coach. I think there are some Duck fans who are probably understandably – excited also maybe a little concerned people would like to keep this going it's been a rough for the pac-12 but in georgia's case you know coming off a national championship lost a lot to the draft you know the fan base has to be giddy with what happened but is there any concern about a fallback or are georgia fans just uh, interested in reloading and watching this team you know do what it's always done under kirby smart you know, this is kind of why we got to show up and watch because, you know, certainly everybody in Georgia's camp has talked about why that's not going to be the case, that they're not around fat and happy, that they're not taking Oregon for granted. But, I mean, psychologically, who really knows? I mean, you know, it's been 41 years Georgia won a national championship, and, and um, uh, you know, that's a big deal. That's a big deal around here. I mean, on one hand, I mean, I think a lot of fans will be out. They'll be excited about, you know, seeing them play, quote-unquote, defending national champions. And uh, But as Kirby has talked about, and I do buy this, certainly from a deep standpoint, that, you know, hey, these have nothing to, uh, you know, open it about because as we just went over, you know, eight of the 11 guys in start on defense have never started before. I mean, you may see some some true freshmen out there, some guys who've never played, um, you know. So so that's that's a fact, you know. That's a factor, and um, and so we'll see how that goes. But yeah, uh, their their mental um, state of mind is is going to be something that I'll be watching for closely. You had a chance to know Dan Lanning as a young coordinator, young assistant, watch him grow a little bit, and then you came out to Eugene. Uh, a couple of few weeks ago, and met with him again. You saw him as a head coach. What changed, or what changes did you see in Dan Lanning? Well, I, I, you know, he's the same guy in a lot of ways, but it's it's for me, it's, it was fascinating to see. I mean, you know, he has taken obviously a lot of the principles 
but he learned at Georgia and at Alabama over there, you know, and, and he's given them different names. When you, you know, They call them – he calls them the get real talks over there. Well, you know, they were skull sessions over here at Georgia. And, you know, he talks about the program DNA. Uh, over here they talk about the pillars of the program. They're the same concepts in general, but he's also doing a lot of things different. I mean, you know, I talked to Dan Lanning six times in three years, you know, uh, uh, because that's Kirby Smart's um, – you know, template. His model allow assistant coaches to be interviewed, and he only lets the coordinators talk at the beginning of the season and bowl season. So that's all I got. You know, Dan Lanning lets you talk to everybody. In fact, by the time we get to the first game, uh, pretty much, you know, every Oregon Duck was available for interview if you wanted to talk to him. That's different. And, you know, and he, he I asked him about that, you know, and he says, you know, I don't know, it could change, you know, I, but, but right now, you know, that just felt like the way to go. And I think some of it has to do with also he's new, you know, you need to kind of open the doors and let people look around and see what you going on. And and I like what I see out there. You know, it's a chance of being uh, exposed to the the true Nike effect, the Nike effect there is uh, there in Oregon, the beautiful facilities, the great climate, um, the the Oregon Ducks, which uh, as, as Lanning will tell you, uh, does not respect state borders, um, and, and you know he has some sway down here in the deep south as well. So, I mean, uh, I, I expect great for Dan Lanning. Now, will it be in year one? No, but I, I just knowing his style and um, his work and energy. I mean, I'm, I'm confident that they got a lot in in this preseason. They will be totally prepared the challenge that awaits them on Saturday. You see Georgia practice. You look at the physicality of the players. You saw Oregon in your visit here. Noticeable difference? Yeah, I mean, a, a little bit. Certainly on the lines of scrimmage. Georgia's just gotten when now it's And Manning's doing the same thing. When Kirby Smart got here in uh, early 2015, December of 2015, at the 16th season, he – verbalized it right away. He says, we got to get bigger on the lines, you know. And the next thing you knew, through Sam Pittman, who's now at Arkansas, uh, you know, Georgia has continued. I mean, if you're not 6'5 and 320 pounds, they're really not interested in you. So they're massive on the lines of scrimmage. They just are. Uh, defensively, to, to some extent, too, but those guys are terribly athletic. And, you know, it's the Alabama model. I mean, everybody would sign – all those guys all the time if, if you could, but the, the the key is convincing them that you you need to come play there. And so, you know, I think Oregon is still smallish in comparison, but, you know, it's all relative. Uh, and then I think another, you know, big challenge for, for Oregon is just having to come all the way across the United States. I mean, I don't, I don't think they'll be physically uh, exhausted uh, or, or anything from that, but, you know, they're, they're definitely going to be – um, outnumbered in terms of the crowd. This is basically a Georgia home game, just displaced 60 miles through the west. Give us an idea because, you know, you, you cover the SEC and you get a chance to see the teams. Another big game for the Pac-12 is going to be Utah at Florida. Is that game at all important for the SEC or Florida? feels really important to the Pac-12. Yeah, I, I think it is. I, it, with with just the climate that we have in college athletics right now, I think uh, all these uh, uh, intra-sectional games are 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 going to take even more importance, uh, and and that's certainly one of them. 
I'm eager to see firsthand what all the fuss is about, both with Florida and Utah. Now, if you, if you, you know, listen to the um, Florida fans and everything, you know, Billy Napier has completely turned that place around in a short time. I don't know whether that's the case or not, but Florida is a, you know, it is a proud traditional SEC program with a, a unlimited access to great players just in their state of alone. Chip Towers with us, Atlanta Journal-Constitution. He's the guy when it comes to Georgia football. It would be a big win for Oregon. It would be a big-time win, to, obviously, to go to Georgia, Dan Lanning's first game. How big a blow would it be to Georgia if they lose this game? Well, I don't think it would be anything that either team wouldn't be able to recover from. That's a great thing about these intra-regional kind of games. And, and in the climate of college football and college athletics, such as it is, I, I think that you know, uh, you know, certainly brings more interest to it to start with and, and a lot more conversation on the back end of whoever wins and whoever loses. But the truth is, you know, both teams will have at least 11 more games to play. Um, you know, it's a it's a top 11 matchup, so neither team I, I think will will just plummet if you if you were to lose in the polls. And you can always get back through your own conference competition. So I don't think it's uh, you know paramount for each team. I think it's going to be a great talker, you know, for at least a few weeks. Chip Towers, Atlanta Journal Constitution. Chip, I will see you in the press box for people who want to read them. AJC.com. Chip Towers, thank you. Good stuff, man. All right, take care, pal. All right, who you got? Georgia, Oregon. I want your score. Tweet it at me, at John Canzano BFT. Make sure you are also uh, signed up for a subscription, a free subscription, a paid subscription, johnconzano.com. I will be live in Georgia writing columns and doing radio shows. Uh, that will happen Thursday and Friday in the run-up to Dan Land, the biggest game of the Dan Landing era, the first game of the Dan Landing era. I want you to leave it here. You got the BFT. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano. Peter Sampson is up next with The Pulse from 6 to 7 on 750 The Game. Big week of radio ahead. We'll uh, be talking to the big guests. I'll be live in Atlanta, Georgia, Thursday and Friday. This radio show is going on site, and we will have the sights and the sounds. If you're not going to Atlanta, I'm going to take you with me 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. Thursday and Friday this week as a big football game uh, on the horizon and a big college football week on the horizon. Not lost on me that there's other stuff going on. And uh, I heard a conversation today as uh, Jeannie Buss was uh, interviewed on Sirius XM Radio, they were talking about sort of the discussions that happen inside an NBA organization. Like, for example, when, when Jerry Buss decided to trade Shaq and part ways with Phil Jackson, how did that conversation go? I thought it was a really interesting talk as Jeannie Buss is talking to the hosts of the Sirius XM uh, NBA show about how stuff gets done, or how it got done at least in the Lakers organization. I want you to to listen to this. Here's Jeannie Buss talking about it. What is the one thing that you wish you did not do as an organization in regards to maybe player transaction and in that regard? Uh, oh, I mean, 
you know, when Shaq got traded, that, that, like, that was, that yes. me. that was really hard. <laughs> and, you know, but I, you know, I, I tell the story about how, you know, my dad made the decision that, you know, he couldn't pay Shaq the money that Shaq could earn under the collective bargaining agreement. And a trade was coming up. And so it was the end of the season and Phil went, to meet with my dad, I think it was actually on Father's Day, interestingly enough. And, um, you know, so Phil went in and said, like, you know, you can't trade Shaq. Like, he's, you know, the most dominant player mm -hmm. in the league. You can't trade him. And my dad said, well, I'm going to trade him, but it, it won't matter to you because you're not coming back as coach either. So. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> so, oh that's not God. your problem. I mean, it's, it's like, this is our life and we, you know, it's like, and like I said, it, it, you know, there's conflicts in families, but it doesn't break apart a family. And, and the bottom line is all the best siblings want to continue the legacy that my dad created. All right. I want you to think about that. And let's talk about the Blazers organization and Jody Allen. First of all, can anybody imagine Jody Allen doing an interview like that where she kind of just talks about the back you know, room dealings of the trailblazers. No, you can't because it's not happening. Further, that little last part that she brought up about sort of keeping the magic in the organization, so to speak, not Magic Johnson, but just sort of the, uh, you know, the, the culture of the organization or the winning ways of the organization, you know, the secret sauce of the organization. Like, the Blazers don't have any secret sauce. And I really am not bringing this up to kind of pile on the Blazers I just feel like, you know, we've all said it. She needs to sell the team. But can you guys, like, when I hear Jeannie Buss talking about that, you know, it explains one of the worst trades in NBA history. It's probably one of the five worst trades in NBA history. Shaq going to Miami in exchange for uh, a bunch of players that, you know, didn't get it done, like Karan Butler and Brian Grant and Lamar Odom ended up uh, going to the Lakers in that deal in 2004. But... I think it's one of the five worst trades in NBA history. The, you know, Shaq wins a title. But to be able to laugh about it afterwards and explain the backstory of it, we're not getting that chatter out of the Blazers organization. We're not getting, we're not getting chatter about, you know, let's talk about the Jermaine O'Neal trade. We're not getting that chatter about, you know, the extension of Brandon Roy and then the subsequent knee injuries or Greg Oden and all that. In part because I don't think the people that are now running the organization were at all invested in the organization or present in the organization or aware of what the hell was going on in the organization over the years. So you don't just have a lost culture. You have no culture whatsoever, which I guess beats toxic culture, but not by much. Yeah, I mean, we don't even hear them talking about anything. like Not even about moves or bad, bad moves or good moves. We don't hear Jody Allen talk about anything. And so I'm with you. Like, there is no culture there is no communication between the front office and the fans. And I think that's one thing that hurts the fans. You know, the, we love the Blazers in Rip City. Like, Rip City has rabid fans, but we don't get anything, any inside information from them. And that's why it's so intriguing to see and hear these type of things out of Jeannie Buss that she, you know, she's talking about what, you know, what her dad did. And he was obviously a cool figure and a mysterious figure as well. But, like, the Blazers have no identity and they still don't. And I think that's that's the first step. And I think that they're hoping with Chauncey Billups is they're trying to get like a new identity of being, you know, a tougher team and get away from what they were before. But it just it's just not working. So communication is obviously the biggest thing missing with the Portland Trailblazers right now. I also think 
let's talk about bad trades. You tell me, worst trade? Robert Tractor Trailer goes from the Dallas Mavericks to the Milwaukee Bucks on draft day 1998 in exchange for Dirk Nowitzki. Mm-hmm. Tractor Trailer for Dirk. That worst trade or the Hornets trading Kobe to the Lakers for Vlade Divac? Yeah, they're both really bad. Um, <laughs> I mean, I guess Vlade played for a little while afterwards. You know, he was still fine when they played on for the Kings trailer, just kind of flamed out. I, I see, but probably Kobe. The Kobe trade's probably worse. Yeah, I think Vl- Vlade played like two seasons after that. And Kobe went on to make like, you know, 15 All-Star games. Yeah. I don't know. Um, yeah, I, I look, bad trades happen. They're part of an organization. But I love that Genie Bus is talking about the Shaq deal, because now Laker fans can go, oh, we couldn't afford the team. And, oh, by the way, like, you know, he didn't want to make that deal. He just had to make that deal because under the new CBA, they couldn't pay Shaq. And so I think it's really good because I think it really does bring the fan base into the fold with ownership, coaching, and and everybody can kind of understand what, what, what happened instead of that kind of murky unknown that we have in Portland. Like, nobody really knows what Jody's thinking. Nobody really knows if she's even thinking about the organization. Nobody really knows if, you know, what happened with the Neil Olshay thing. Like, nobody's talking. She and, should do an interview. And at that time, it was a lot of Kobe versus Shaq. But that, that's not the case, right? Like, he couldn't yeah. afford it. So it, it's very interesting that now fans don't have to choose sides. And I, but I just love the way she's talking about it. Like, look, hey, that wasn't a deal that we wanted to make, but my dad made it, and here's why, and we talked about it after. And now as kids, she even said it, as siblings, we all want this organization to be the best that it can. Like, damn, I wish Jody Allen would come out and say something like that. Not in a statement, but do an interview. Come on this show. Do an interview. Like, you know, I'm not going to kill you on the interview. Like, no, nobody's going to eat you. you. You come on the radio show and just talk about it. And I think Blazer fans would love to hear from you know the trustee of the organization all right punch and audio is coming up i want you here for it it's coming up after the break leave it here b f f t from the pack west center in downtown portland presented by high caliber millwrights here's john canzano with a bald-faced truth You can only watch one game this college football weekend. What game are you watching? Steven, what, you, what game are you watching? Ooh. Only one game. I'm going to go with uh, Utah at Florida. Yeah. I'd probably go... I'd probably go Oregon State, Boise State. If I can only watch one game. Because it's the game that I think is up in the... It's a little up in the air. It's the game I care about most that's up in the air. I think Oregon, Georgia, I don't think Oregon's going to beat Georgia, but I think Oregon's going to play Georgia closer than Kirby Smart is comfortable with. I'm just very intrigued with Florida this year. They had a down year with Dan Mullen. It seemed like they kind of quit on their team. New coach coming in. There's not much expectations. They were picked fourth uh, in their side of the SEC. I think the win total is about seven, which is way lower than any historical Florida team. I mean, is it just a one-year blip, or is it a culture change, right? And I think if it is a culture change, Utah can go in there and win. If it's just a one-year blip, I think Utah's going to have their hands full uh, with Anthony Richardson, that quarterback. He's a, he's a beast. Let's see what happens. I like Utah in that game. I think Utah's got a lot to prove. I mean, I, I, I got to give Kyle Whittingham credit. They did some things they'd never done before last year. 
They, they won the Pac-12. First time they won the Pac-12. They go to the Rose Bowl. First time going to the Rose Bowl. Then they lost the Rose Bowl. And then I thought, well, next year it's going to be a rebuild for Kyle Whittingham. Look at all these guys he's going to lose. Devin Lloyd went in the draft. But beyond that, all these guys came back that were the, you know, sort of those guys that were possible NFL draft picks, guys that were going to be drafted in the third, fourth, and fifth round, all decided to come back. It was kind of the opposite of what happened at Oregon with all those players. Today on cut day, we're watching a lot of names that probably should be back in college, but all those players at Oregon that jumped into the draft and it didn't go well, the opposite happened at Utah. And I asked Kyle Whittingham on Media Day, I said, how did you convince your guys that there was something left to be proved like you know unfinished business is what they said and he didn't really have a good answer for it because and in part because i think he didn't want to share the answer but he's got his guys back and i'm curious to see how good they can be a year later let's play some punch it audio we interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the bald face truth headquarters Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio, presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Well, I wrote about Jonathan Smith today at johnconzano.com, and I wrote about his introductory news conference, and oh, here we are, four-plus seasons later, Jonathan Smith ready to coach game one of his fifth season. It'll be against Boise State and Andy Avalos. Here's Jonathan Smith talking about Andy Avalos. Punch it. We start with a real challenge. I got a bunch of respect for the program at Boise State. Spent two years there. Um, know the tradition and history and the effort that they play with. They got a big-time quarterback. There's got a bunch of experience. These guys can score points in bunches. Uh, defensively, one of the best defenses uh, year in and year out. Don't coach Avalos well. Coached with him for a year, and those, those he's always run a really good defense, especially his time at, at Oregon, and then taking over at Boise State. So we got a bunch of respect for them. Know that they're going to present a big time challenge, and I think it's good. You look at the, our non-conference slate. I think it's going to get us ready for Pac-12 play because they're three big time opponents. Starting with starting with Boise State. I think it's true that Jonathan Smith knows the culture and the history at Boise State. But I'm not sold that this team under Andy Avalos is the same old Boise State. Five losses a year ago. Really important that Avalos gets out of the gates with a win. He had great talent at Oregon. Boise State had great talent uh, you know, prior to Avalos becoming the head coach. I'm not sure that Andy Avalos is going to work out as Boise State's head coach. That's what I'm trying to say. We'll find out, though. Dan Lanning, Oregon football coach. Is there an advantage for Lanning that he was the D coordinator at Georgia? Punch it. Yeah, I mean, the biggest carryover is going to be, I, I, I probably have a good feel for what they're going to do defensively and how they're going to do things defensively. And on the same note, they probably have a good feel of how we're going to do things defensively, right? So uh, I think the, the challenge of a coach is ultimately – you know, Kirby Smart's not going to play a single snap on Saturday, and neither is Dan Lanning, right? So it doesn't really matter what I know. It matters what my players know and what they can execute, right? And uh, sometimes coaches try to get too cute, right? It's going to come down to takeaways. It's going to come down to explosive plays, right? Who can out-hit? Who can out-hustle, right? Who can tackle on the perimeter? Um, you know, that's what this game is really about. And certainly there's going to be a schematic advantage on both sides, right, at times. Um, 
but that's not ultimately what it's about. It's about who can put their players in position to make plays. I think he's spitting a lot of wisdom there. I also think week one, game one, a lot of weird things happen. Hell, you watch Northwestern and Nebraska. Strange things happen. You can't turn the ball over. You can't. You have to play four quarters. You can't play, you know, all but one series. No, they'll kill you in the end. So I think it's really important for Oregon and Dan Lanning to uh, be good early in this game and to focus on the things that he's talking about, playing a complete game and executing. It's not emotion. Okay, it feels like it's emotion in week one. Dan Lanning says it's less about emotion and more about execution. Punch it. Yeah, play the game, not the occasion, right? That's that's certainly the focus. Um, this You can't win on emotion. You have to win on execution. Um, so that's that's what we're going to continue to keep in the forefront. And uh, I always feel like you can't let your highs get too high or your lows get too low, right? Wherever the pendulum swings, we're not going to let that affect us uh, until the you know the last uh, zero ticks off that that clock. You know, so that's the way we have to operate. It was uh, just several years ago, three years ago. Mario Cristobal was on the field at AT&T Stadium after Auburn came back under Bo Nix and beat the Ducks late in that game. I remember Cristobal standing out on the field. He was a little bit shocked. His face was kind of blanked. He was trying to get his players into the locker room, as coaches sometimes do. They kind of stand in the end zone area as the players are leaving and going up the tunnel. And Cristobal was waiting for a couple of his players. But it was the expression on his face that got me. He was in shock. It was a game Oregon should have won. Oregon should have beat Auburn at AT&T Stadium. But they didn't play a full game. I don't want to see Dan Landing standing on the field with that expression in his eyes after the game. I don't want to see that. Kirby Smart at Georgia talked about Noah Sewell and Justin Flo, the two linebackers. He also talked about the linebackers against the tight ends. It's a big matchup. Here's Kirby Smart. Punch it. They have a tremendous, tremendously talented inside linebacker room. They both two kids we recruited here and, and tried to get here. And we had some pretty good inside linebackers when they decided to come, and we felt strongly enough they were good enough to come here and play. So they're talented. Um, our tight ends are are really good football players. They're uh, conscientious. They they work hard. Um, they, we need them to be successful regardless of who we play because they're good players, and good players got to play well. But I, I think it'd be misleading to think that, that there's like this kind of like matchup where it's this guy against this guy because I don't see that. Well, I, I disagree a little bit with Kirby Smart because I do think the matchups matter in this game, and I think Oregon's got two really good players in Sewell and Flo they got to keep those two guys healthy. We have at different points seen Noah Sewell walking off the field limping and Justin Flo hurt and missing games. So I think it's really important to Dan Lanning's first year that those two guys are healthy. Marcus Freeman and Notre Dame, a big underdog in week one. Here's Freeman talking about it. Ohio State, a double-digit favorite over Notre Dame. Punch it. No, I'm going to write that down. You said 17 and a half points, right? We'll use that in a team meeting today, you know. Um, it's good to know. You know, I haven't paid much attention to the spread, but I remember that one time we were on college game day, I said just keep making go up and up. I don't know. In week one, you get a bunch of points like that. That's why I like Oregon in the points. I frankly like Notre Dame in the points. Let's see what happens. Matt Berry talking about the Pac-12's reputation. He says it's on the line in Gainesville, where Utah and Florida are playing. Here's Barry. Punch it. The reputation of a conference, an entire conference, is at stake. And that is Utah and Florida. 
And I'll tell you why, because it's, it's not a secret. Pac-12 is down. It's been down. They haven't had a college football playoff participant. They had Oregon. They had Washington. We haven't seen it since. People believe, that most believe, that, that Utah is the team that can get the Pac-12 into the playoff discussion. Cam Rising's back at quarterback. They won the conference a year ago in that historic Rose Bowl loss to Ohio State. But Utah's the team. They cannot go to the swamp and lose if the Pac-12 wants any opportunity of being in the playoff. It's probably accurate. Like, you know, if you think about the formula to get to the playoff is you got to have one loss or no losses. You can't have two losses. Nobody in this era with two losses has made the playoff. So if you are if you are a Pac-12 team, you know that it's very difficult to go undefeated, plan nine games in your conference schedule. In fact, nobody's done it since Oregon in 2010. So you know you can't lose this game if you're Utah. I don't know if it's necessarily the reputation of the entire Pac-12 conference, but frankly, winning these games up front, I think, is more important than winning in the bowl season. So if you want to help the narrative, yeah, some of that reputation is at stake in this opener. I like Utah to go to Florida and win. I like Oregon to play Georgia close. I like Oregon State to beat Boise State. I think it will be a mostly promising opening weekend for the Pac-12, and they need it. Lee Corso is 87 years old. Go easy on the guy. Here's the ESPN personality sounding like an 87-year-old guy on TV. In the SEC telegame, Georgia versus Alabama, SEC telegame. Then the winner goes on and plays for the national title. Ah, that's what I predict. I predict the SEC winner will not win the national title this year. The SEC winner will not win the SEC title this year. Details later. <laughs> Lee Corso, love the guy. I forgive him. John Gruden talking about those leaked emails. What happened with that, Chucky? Here's Gruden. Punch it. I'm ashamed about uh, what has uh, come about in these emails, and I'll make no uh, excuses for it. It's just, it's, it's shameful. But uh, I am a good person. I believe that. I, I'm, I, I go to church. I've been married for 31 years. I got three great boys. I still love football. I've made some mistakes, but I don't think anybody else in here hasn't. Uh, and I just ask for forgiveness, and hopefully I get another shot. John Gruden. But I, I, get, I get choked up, you know, because uh, there's a lot of misunderstanding out there right now. What you read, what you hear, what you watch on TV. Hell, I worked at ESPN for nine years. I worked hard at that job. I don't even want to watch the channel anymore uh, because I don't believe everything is true. Uh, and I know a lot of it is, is just trying to get people to watch. But I think we got to get back to reality, and that's why I look forward to Saturdays, because you're going to get what you deserve when the whistle blows, and we'll see if the Razorbacks can get after Cincinnati, which I hope they do. Yeah, as a matter of fact, there's John Gruden talking at the Little Rock Touchdown Club in Arkansas. That is Punch and Audio. Guys, let's talk Gruden. Um, I didn't love... His explanation slash apology slash non-apology there. As long as we're being real, if he wants real, that's real. Um, I didn't love it because it it felt to me like he was saying, um, 
I'm embarrassed by what I did, but that but was a little too big for me. You know, it should have been, I'm embarrassed by what I did, period. I'm sorry for those I hurt, period. Uh, it would never happen again, period. I didn't need all that other stuff about going to church, being married, having kids, and talking about how things get blown out of proportion on television. Yeah, I'm more sorry that I got caught. Like, that's what that was. That was the big but. So, yeah. you're saying what you're saying is, John, you weren't at your studio clapping just like everyone else was clapping right now for John no. Gruden. Yeah. Me and Sean were not giving, you know, standing ovations to it. It's just so weird, like, how the how those people are just buying into all this stuff. And yeah, it, it, it's it's pretty sickening, right? Like, John Gruden has these emails leaked and he basically, you know, says he's wrong, but at the same time, you know, well, not my, you know, whatever. It's, it's just because you got caught, man. That's the reason why you're saying anything. Yeah, and it sounds to me like he's trying to – he wants to coach again, right? He wants another opportunity. He wants to coach again. This is not the way to get there. The way to get there is, I think, a heartfelt apology, some contrition, making amends with people. And, you know, there's a path back, like, for people who screw up or people who end up, you know, and in his case, it was racist and sexist. You know, I don't know if there is a path back to coaching – but there, I think there's a path back for most people when it comes to forgiveness and understanding. And but he's not there yet. He's not. I don't hear him owning what he did and the hurt that it brought on some people. Is he even a good coach? Like anymore? Yeah. You know, like he and he he made a lot of awful. Like he was kind of in charge of the front office there and and lost. I guess it was Oakland back in the day. It's just some awful picks, and obviously there was some weird stuff going on in uh, in Oakland when he was there. Like I know he was a good coach, like back in the two thousands, but I'm not convinced based on what I just saw in Oakland that he he deserves another job, just based yeah, off that. Yeah, if you look back, I mean, he never in in his time back with the Raiders on the second tour, you know, he was never above five hundred until that last year. He was three and two when he resigned. You know, so it was. You know, twenty-two and thirty-one in that last stop uh, in Vegas and Oakland. But and and talking about the draft picks, Sean, I saw this earlier. The first round picks they had uh, six of them from twenty nineteen to twenty twenty-one. Three of them have been cut, and three of them have had their fifth year declined. So that's how good their first round picks have been. So pretty terrible. It. So let me ask you guys this. You know, we are a society that wants to forgive people, wants to believe in second chances, and I think that. Those are important things in, in, in a society. Like we allow uh, criminals who are convicted of crime to earn a second chance by paying their debt to society and, and then rehabilitating themselves. And that's the best case for our society, right? Uh, so, but what do we do with a guy like Rudin? What do we do with the fact that, you know, he sounds like he's, he wants to coach again. He says he was ashamed of the emails. He called him shameful, which I'm glad he did. But, but, I'm a good person, and I hope to get another shot. What does he need to do to get another shot? I mean, I'm, I'm again, I'm all for second chances, like you said. I just think in sports, and when you're in the public eye like this, some things can't be said and some things can't be done. Like, I don't know that he deserves a second chance, right? And to be in this type of business. He could be in other businesses and get a second chance, but when you're in the public public eye and there's you're watched by so many people, there's so many kids, there's so many, you know, people that are watching your team and fans of that team, I just think it's hard to like want to bring you back in, right? How can people trust you that you've really actually changed? It's just tough. I don't, I don't know if there's anything that he could necessarily say or do that would bring me to the spot where I'm like, yeah, I feel comfortable with him being head coach again. I like the, the way it goes in sports and I don't agree with it at all. I think it's horrible, but like 
it, it's how how good are you at, at what you do in sports, and like that is how people get brought back. So like again, I don't think John Gruden is that good of a head coach. I don't, I don't think that he's he's worth the risk. You know, it's it's the same thing with other people. Like, you know, Matt Ariza, he's a punter. Uh, you know, I'm not sure he's going to get another chance. But then we see, on the other hand, people like Deshaun Watson. And again, I totally disagree with the way this plays out. Deshaun Watson gets a second chance uh, because he's a top 10, top 5 quarterback, and he's young. So uh, I think with John Gruden, like, he wants to be a head coach. Like Steven said, if he was in another business, maybe he'd get another chance. But he's just not worth some of the baggage because, really, I don't think he's that good of a head coach or football mind these days. He brings up going to church. He brings up the fact that he has been married for 31 years and he has sons as evidence that that he's a good person. (laughs) That, to me... Like, you know, I Mike Florio, I think, wrote this today. He says, has anybody ever acknowledged publicly I'm a bad person? Like, has anybody ever said that? Like, Well, Her- uh, Harold Varner's going to the Live Golf Tour. He admitted he did it for the money. Yeah. Like, he, he said that you know, it's going to be life-changing for my family. I know it's going to cause some problems if I'm going to lose some fans, but this is the decision I have to make. So, I mean, he kind of did. Kind of said he's a bad guy. I don't think he gets back in the league. You guys? No. No, no. And- Do you think he gets back to college ball? Does he coach anywhere? No, maybe like uh, really? the XFL or you know one of those minor. You, you can't see like a small college football team, kind of like a, um, I don't know, kind of like the Deion Sanders era or like area of college football, like some smaller team. I don't think he would want to do that, and so I don't think that he's he'd be come back. Yeah, his first round picks in the last two years are either out of the league or under arrest. His uh, the fourth overall pick in 2019 hadn't started a game since 2020. Um, you got, you know, him trying to say, you know, I'm all, I guess I'm only a little bit of a bigot. Is that what he's trying to say? Like, yeah. I don't, I don't know. Only on my emails, not to people's faces. I don't know. And to Sean's point after he, you know, after he got let go, the team rallied and they made the playoffs without him. Right. So is he even a good coach? We don't, I don't know if that, that's a fair question to ask nowadays because yeah. the game has changed yeah. so much. Has he so, caught up with it? Kind of a, a side point here. Um, nothing to do with Gruden, but man, just kind of reminds me, I'm not excited. We talked about this a little bit last week. I am so not excited to watch Urban Meyer on Fox Sports this year. I think yeah. very similar to Gruden, just, you know, the kind of person that he's proven himself to be. I think it's really appalling that Fox Sports brought him back. I'm, I'm not looking forward to watching him. I also think that some of those traits that those coaches have, and all Urban Meyer, John Gruden, they're not alone. Um, they're very self-serving people, and they uh, will take a shortcut to whatever uh, outcome benefits them. And in some cases, I do think those kinds of people can be successful as coaches to a certain extent. And Urban Meyer was successful to a certain extent. John Gruden won a Super Bowl. To a certain extent, but I think in the end, like it was, been, it's been really interesting to me to watch Urban Meyer like struggle in the NFL and John Gruden get. I don't see a bunch of people rallying around these two guys saying, "Hey, they deserve another shot. They should be in coaching. They're great people." You can say you're a great person, John Gruden, Urban Meyer. I don't see a line of people out there going, "These are great people." And you're right, Sean. Like I don't. I don't have a good feeling when I see Urban Meyer on the television. So, John, when, when Urban Meyer goes to Nebraska after they fire Scott Frost, are you going to be happy about it? No. Because but, you know, like, there's going to be yeah. some Power 5 job that needs a jump start, 
and Urban Meyer is going to be that guy, okay. right? He's we, been so successful in college everywhere he's been. Why would he not be successful again? Okay, just in the last three to five years, we we know about the uh, the thing that happened to Ohio State, kind of hiding up some of the allegations there. We know what happened with the uh, the girl at the bar. But also, I'd invite you to go look up at, on The Athletic the article about what happened with the Jaguars last year and some of the things that he said, the way he treated players. Yeah. And, man, it's just awful. And, uh, you know, I have no doubt he'll get another chance. He's already got another shot at Fox Sports. And, I, again, I don't even think he's that good on air. And no. I don't think he's a good person. Well, why do all. they put him on? Why do they put him on? Who does he appeal to? I guess he gets eyeballs. You know, he's a football guy. Yeah, you know, he's a he's a very successful yeah. football coach, and, you know, he got fired from the Jacks. People, I guess, want to hear what – I'm not one of those people, but people want to hear what either. he wants to say, what he has yeah. to say. I'm not either. Leave it here. You got the bald face truth. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Anna's popped into the studio making her triumphant return to this radio program. Uh, she was banned and damned for a while. Anna, I want to play something here. Uh, Tom Brady's news conference. Uh, we dissected this yesterday on the show pretty heavily, but I want to replay it again for people who haven't heard it. And I want your reaction. Specifically, you've seen the video. You've seen his face. Have you not seen his face? Yeah. You've seen his face. You're not plugged in. Um, all right, so I'm going to play the Tom Brady clip, and uh, here we go. It's all personal. You know, everyone's got different situations they're dealing with, so we all have really unique challenges to our life, and, uh, you know, we're I'm 45 years old, man. There's a lot of shit going on, so, you know, you just got to try to figure out life the best you can, and, um, you know, it's a uh, continuous process, so. Continuous process. It's a lot of bleep going on. What do you make of all that? I mean, I think that, you know, we live in an age where we celebrate youth. And so um, I'm not surprised that he would be getting some work done. I mean, I think we're extremely. Wait, 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 wait. You know he's had work done? No, I mean it's just obvious. I mean yeah. he ca- he Breaking went away news. and he came, <laughs> he came back. Yeah, sources tell me. I thought you maybe have found something on Us Magazine or something. Tom got Botox. <laughs> no, but I think any reasonable person can look at his face and compare it to you know images from just a few weeks ago and realize that something dramatically different has happened. Um, yeah, so, you know, like, I, I just don't, I'm not shocked by it because we live in a time where we celebrate youth and, you know, he's obviously under the microscope for his age and still playing at his age. I think it's kind of sad, honestly. Like, I, 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 I kind of feel like people should be able to age gracefully and not have to get a bunch of work done and feel like, you know, to be at the top of their game, they have to go through, like, uh, what what looks to be a facelift, you know, on his face. It, it's just, it's hard. Is it harder for a man or a woman in that sense? Because I think there's more pressure by society on women. But I don't think if, the, if Tom Brady were a woman, people would be, you know, gawking at the work that has been done. Oh, I, th- I think they would. I think they still would. I think traditionally there's been more pressure on women to look young. But I think that has transferred over very much now into the male gender. 
and when it comes to endorsements and the money that he can make and I don't know I just think there's a different kind of pressure now on men who are in the limelight to, to look a certain way I also think Tom Brady there's speculation about where he was did he uh, I'm gonna throw out some of the scenarios did he pre-schedule a vacation and promise Giselle hey we're going somewhere and then when he came back, he agreed to, uh, or he made a deal with the Buccaneers to step away for 11 days during training camp. Is there some kind of family issue going on with, with Brady and his wife? Is this uh, him stepping away to deal with something that we don't know about? What do you think he meant when he said, I'm 45, there's a lot of bleep going on? I don't know. I mean, I think based on what we've discussed and what we've seen in the last year or so when it comes to his relationship and the statements that have been made, it's a lot of conjecture. We don't yeah. really know, right? What's going on yeah, but in you're that in, You're pretty intuitive. What, where's your intuition telling you? The intuition tells me that his decision to go back and play probably didn't sit great within, like, the family dynamic. You know, that's a big swing to the other direction. Yeah. And, I, I mean, I can only speak as, like, a wife and a mother, and those kind of decisions have to be made as a family, right? And so I don't know if there was an expectation that he would be around the family more and that he would, you know, take a step back from what has been his professional career and the sacrifices that I'm sure have been made on Giselle's part to support that. Uh, you know, I, I, I can't imagine that that hasn't rocked the boat. I asked these guys yesterday, Stephen and Sean, if they thought we would find out ever where Brady went for those 11 days. What do you think? Oh, it'll come out. Oh, for sure. It'll come out. There's no way. There's no way that, like, the most high-profile football player of our time goes away for 11 days and it never gets reported, never gets leaked. But what if he, you know, what if he's not at Disneyland? What if he's like, you know, he rented a private island? Or, yeah, you know? and and flew in a plastic surgeon to work on his face. <laughs> Do you think I need work? No. I'm looking at Brady and I'm feeling a little no. insecure. Like maybe I should get some work done. Why? Because you want to be the subject <laughs> of cruel Twitter memes making fun of your face? People are already making fun of me. Not you know? to that extent. <laughs> Not to that extent. All right. I want to ask you, since you're in the media world, uh, about the wildest news conference of the week. I'll play a clip from it coming up next. You got the bald face truth. I want you to leave it here. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Guys, we hit on this yesterday with San Diego State's athletic director and head coach Brady Hoke made a mockery of their news conference yesterday in which they were trying to talk about Snapdragon Stadium opening up. A, uh, the athletic director, J.D. Wicker, was not happy with reporters who continued to ask about the rape investigation, the sex assault investigation that is ongoing at San Diego State. And he eventually walked out. Brady Hoke, the coach at San Diego State, walked out. We're here right now to talk about uh, this time. We'll take questions related to the game this weekend and the opening of Snapdragon Stadium. Again, we're, we're here right now to talk about uh, 
again, uh, we're here to talk about the Arizona football game and the opening of Snapdragon Stadium. Again, we'll take questions related to the game this weekend. If there are none, then we can end the press conference. All right, guys. We appreciate the time. Thank y'all. I think it was such a ham-handed way to handle what would have been a simple conversation about, you know, hey, we're, we're limited on what we can talk about. Steven, we talked about this yesterday. Sean, we talked about this yesterday. I want to kick it around a little bit more. How much of, Does this become a distraction for San Diego State in week one? They're opening a stadium. They're playing Arizona. What do you guys think? I don't think it's going to be a distraction for the players uh, necessarily, but I do think it's going to be a distraction for just the image of San Diego State. Right? We talk about maybe the Pac-12 expanding to more teams. San Diego State seems like an obvious choice there. I think that there's now because of this and the uncertainty of just the whole situation and the bad PR that it caused, you know, maybe we start talking about, well, maybe they're not a good fit in the Pac-12 to have San Diego State here. I, I don't think it's going to affect the players much on the field. Uh, I think off the field, maybe it does. I, I, I think it might be, honestly. I think of less so the players, but more so like what's the fan – perception going to be like there what's the fan vibe going to be there like there i uh i think this definitely disrupts their their big grand opening that the ad really wanted to talk about and um i i could see this being a little bit of a distraction i think brady hoke's been fielding questions he's been probably thinking less about the arizona wildcats and more about this uh this allegation this week i i could see arizona winning this game on uh on saturday i might even pick them it's, Arizona's going to be better, and Jane Delora at quarterback makes them better. But I'm not quite sure that they're all the way there. I and and frankly, opening a stadium like this is normally celebrated with you know fans are the energy inside the stadium's big. The fans' energy is up, teams' energy's up. I think it's a really unfair position, and I'm sure Arizona didn't know when they scheduled this game that that they were going to be walking into Snapdragon as the prey. Uh, for this party, but I'm starting to think more and more about this being a possible, you know, team or program distraction. Brady Hoke was part of this news conference. Players at San Diego State, they know what happened. Matareza gets cut in Buffalo, and now there's, you know, questions about what did San Diego State know. And San Diego State's leaning, like a lot of universities do, into the idea that they were not allowed to talk about this, that, you know, police told them. And I'm going to tell you this, like Oregon and Oregon State have both leaned into that at different times as well. But I feel like this is one of these cases where you got to kind of go above, you know, hey, uh, the, the police department told us not to talk about it. And you got to have some standards. You got to talk about what your program stands for, the culture of your program. And you have to send a message publicly. And especially if San Diego State's trying to be included in the Pac 12 conference. If the Pac-12 is seriously looking at San Diego State, I, I guarantee you more than one of the presidents in the Pac-12 is going, huh, what happened with this? Let's ask some questions about this. Like, I think at bare minimum, San Diego State, if they're going to be included in the Pac-12, is going to have to answer some questions about what happened because if you're the Pac-12, the last thing you want is to admit San Diego State, invite them in, open arms, and then find out you have a Baylor situation on your hand because that's not going to fly. It's just not going to fly in the Pac-12, and it's not going to fly like, you know, conference affiliation or whatnot and, and and yes Baylor's part of the Big 12 and Baylor wins at a high level but I think if Baylor were trying to get into another university in the wake of the Art Bryles mess at Baylor I, I get into a different conference I think they would have had a difficult time making that leap with as bad as things were that said 
I don't think this hurts San Diego State's chances enough to not include him. I just think they have to answer some questions about it. I'm really disappointed that the AD there went with, you know, oh, no, not We're here right now to talk about uh, this time. We'll take questions related to the game this weekend and the opening of Snapdragon Stadium. Again. That's not a news conference. That is a, that's a one-sided conversation. If you're not willing to answer questions and take questions, it's not a news conference. It's a speech. Yeah, he should just put out like a Twitter video or something, right? I'm just saying, you know, we're excited to open up Snapdragon Stadium against the University of Arizona, yada, 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 instead of going out and put on this charade that it is actually a press conference. I'm going to answer questions. And, And look, I've been in on those news conferences where it's evident like they won't call on you because they know you're going to ask a tough question, or if you ask the question, they won't they won't answer it. I've been in on those, and I literally have gone under my breath. This isn't a news conference. It's not a news conference if you're not taking questions and you're not being real about it. The five at five's coming up top of the hour. I want you to leave it here. You got the BFT. Back to the bald faced truth with John Canzano on seven fifty the game. Five o'clock hour, we'll give you the five at five. It's the five biggest stories going on. Uh, Scott Frost, uh, his seat definitely warm, if not if not becoming hot after the loss in the opening week, is now uh, having the kind of news stories written about him that no head coach wants to have written. Uh, he comes out with a story today. ESPN had a story, and the Associated Press had a story about Scott Frost not being at odds with his offensive coordinator, Mark Whipple. Um, which means they probably are at odds. Uh, But Scott Frost said in a news conference today that there is no tension between him and his new offensive coordinator after the season opening lost. Frost is 15-30 and in five seasons. Um, After they lost 31-28 to Northwestern, he said they need to be more creative. He said the coaching staff has to work together better. I thought he was falling on the sword a little bit, but I could understand why reporters would want to know, um, is he criticizing Whipple, who took over the play-calling duties for, from Frost when he was hired away from Pitt? Uh, Frost said today, uh, Whipple is smart. He's good at what he does. We have other coaches who are smart and good at what they do. We need to find our rhythm of putting all the best stuff together. I thought it was good on Saturday, but it can be better. Um, Huskers play North Dakota this weekend. And Whipple is supposed to meet with the media tomorrow. Now, Frost was a pretty good play caller at Oregon. Had a reputation of that. Really good play caller at Central Florida when he was the head coach. Guys, is there a path back for Scott Frost here, or is this the beginning of the end? I mean, I guess there's always a chance, right? Like, somehow if they just kept winning games. But I don't I don't expect it, right? Like, it... It, w- it wasn't unbelievable that Nebraska lost the game against Northwestern. It was more believable to me, right, that they blew a lead and they lose a one-score game. Like, that's been Scott Frost's tenure in Nebraska. So it wasn't unbelievable they lost. Like, I totally understood where it was coming from. So I don't see I don't see where he writes the ship here and he gets to 6-6 six and six or 7-5 and five and it saves his job. Like, I think that's the best-case scenario is they get to a bowl and it would be at 6-6, six and 6-7-5. Six, six and seven and five. I, I just can't see him getting anywhere higher. I think it's dead man walking for him. Yeah, and I think, too, the kiss of death for a head coach is you start to see these stories midweek. You also don't have the AD who hired you in the room. 
He lost to Northwestern in Dublin, Ireland. He gets North Dakota and Georgia Southern in the next two weeks. So I think he's 2-1 and one heading to uh, week four. But it's going to be Oklahoma at home on Fox, then Indiana, Rutgers, Purdue. That's not too bad. Uh, Illinois, Minnesota, Michigan, Wisconsin after that. Then they finish up with Iowa. They're, they're scheduling, you know, it's not that bad. It's not. I don't see Penn State. I don't see Ohio State on the schedule. So I still think there's a path back, but he's, he's got Michigan. He's got Wisconsin. He's got Oklahoma still on that schedule. He's going to have to make hay against Indiana, Rutgers, Purdue, Minnesota, Iowa. Those are the games he has to win. Yeah, Otherwise, like he, he has done. To, he has to win those games, but he hasn't done that in his career at Nebraska. No. And so he's had a lot of opportunities to do that. And so I just for that, I just don't trust it, right? I just don't think he's going to be able to pull those off. What's I, the problem with that job? Is it is it easy to recruit the Nebraska? They have such a history, and it's obviously a, a pretty big brand in college football. But, man, it's Nebraska. Like, how how well has he been? i got to do some digging on how well he's been recruiting. I can't imagine it's that easy to, to recruit to Nebraska. I mean, the expectations are so high there because they were so good under Tom Osborne back in the day. I mean, I joked around and I said, yeah, Urban Meyer's going to get that job. But it, like, it wouldn't surprise me if they went out and they got a guy like that because he has a proven record of bringing schools back from the dead. Kind of like, you know, Florida was down and they brought in Urban Meyer, then he became national champions there. I don't know. I don't know how good that job is. They should be good because that half of the Big Ten, like you said, John, you just, you just said their schedule. That, that half of the Big Ten isn't that bad, right? It's Wisconsin. It's Iowa. It's Minnesota in a certain year. Nebraska should be or towards the top in that league every year. When I look at Nebraska, you know, really since Bo Pelini, and Bo Pelini won 9 and 10 and 10 and 9 and 10 and 9. Mike Riley comes in. He goes 6 and 7. Nine and four, not bad. Four and eight. Scott Frost, four and eight, five and seven, three and five, three and nine. Now zero oh and one. He's in. He's in real trouble. There's no way they're going to tolerate that. And you know they'll pro- They're longing for the Bill Callahan days of Nebraska football. But I, I still think Nebraska is a really good job. I think it's a tougher road in the Big Ten than the Big Twelve and UCLA and USC. I think we'll learn that eventually. But. I, I just don't know. I thought that one would work. Like, you know, I thought Scott Frost to Nebraska made a whole bunch of sense. Na- you know, the native son coming home, taking back over the program, what he had done at Central Florida. Thought he could recruit the state of Florida still. Thought he would be okay, but he just has not. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I thought it was a home run when they did it. But do you think that he – do you think he still has a job there because he is – a Nebraska guy, right? Like he played at Nebraska. They love him there, so they want to give him the benefit of the doubt. Where if he is anybody else and he's that coach at Nebraska, he had been gone maybe probably last season. He has a holiday named after him in the state. December first is Scott Frost Day. That's what I see on Wikipedia. So is that yeah. the only reason why he's they still coaching? There. Is that the reason he's still his... coaching at Nebraska? He's an I... alum. He was great at UCF. He was great at Oregon. You know, everything was set up for him to succeed there. There there's a little bit of, you know, there's a Jonathan Smith parallel except Oregon State doesn't have the national championships in its past. And it doesn't have a fan base that, you know, has the high expectations and, you know, won 10 and 11 and 12 games and played for all the marbles, you know, multiple times. And I think that's the difference. I think I think he has – they've given him about enough, you know, about enough uh, of a wide berth. I think if he's not – if he doesn't turn this around this season – 
Nebraska football is making a change. There's just no way. Like, you know, they cut bait on Mike Riley after three seasons. They've now, this will be season number five for Scott Frost. He's, he's not been close to 500 in any of those seasons. Three and nine uh, and one and eight in conference play last year. It's just not going to get it done. Um, it brings me to, let me ask you guys about this. You know, Dan Lanning's father, Don, told me that he believes that Dan Lanning is a guy that would stay at Oregon long term. You know, he knows his kid. And, and granted, things change. We don't know what, you know, circumstances would be in front of you, whatnot. Then, meanwhile, at, at Oregon State, you got Jonathan Smith who, you know, he, he went to school there. He grew up, his grandmother lived a mile from campus. He has a deep connection like former coaches uh, Mike Riley and, and certainly like uh, current, you know, women's basketball coach Scott Ruick, who's a, a guy that, you know, was born in Hillsborough and, and Pat Casey from Newburgh, like, those are native sons. Jonathan Smith, even though he's born in Southern California, grew up in Southern California, has that native son feel at Oregon State. I just don't think there's any way that Oregon State would ever fire Jonathan Smith unless he did something wild and or had sustained failures over multiple years. I feel like he's in the kind of job at Oregon State that he could plug away and win six, seven, eight, nine games a year for a whole bunch of years like Mike Riley did. It's set up beautifully. And then Dan Lanning at Oregon, I think while there's higher expectations, you know, he's a guy who's been in the SEC, but I don't know that the SEC calls to him. You know, he's a Kansas City guy. Doesn't have an alma mater to go to. William Jewell's not going to steal Dan Lanning from Oregon. You guys think these two guys are going to stick around? I think Jonathan Smith for sure, uh, just for all the reasons you just said. You know, he played there and everyone loves him there. And like you said, expectations aren't super high, right? Like, if he's making bowl games every year, I think Oregon State fans, for the most part, are going to be happy. Like, will they want more? Of course. And hopefully, just like the Mike Riley era, they have years where they are competing for Pac-12 titles, and they're playing Oregon in the final game of the season, and it's winner go to the Rose Bowl, right? It would be winner go to Vegas in this case. Uh, with Dane Lanning, I think that, that was the big question for me when they hired him, right? Like, the other people rooting for the job, like Justin Wilcox, I think a lot of fans wanted him because... It was the same situation as Mike Riley or as uh, Jonathan Smith, right? If he comes to Oregon, this might be a career guy, right? This would be his career job that he wants, and he would stay there for a long time as long as they're successful. With Dane Laney, I think there's always the rumor of, well, he came from the SEC. Is he going to go back? I I have no idea. He said all the right things. He has seemed to fit in seamlessly with Eugene and the Northwest. I want to think that he's going to stay here long term. I just have no idea. Yeah, I, I agree with you on Smith. I think as soon as long as he keeps churning out minimum five wins per season, probably six, more so six, five to six wins every season, he's he's their guy as long as he wants the job. With Dan Lanning, what I always come back to is just after Mario Cristobal leaving, which was after Willie Taggart leaving, like I can't imagine the interview. Like Rob Mullins had to have been just pounding the table saying, you're going to stay here, right? And it had to have just been the main thing that uh, that was talked about during that interview. And uh, Dan Lanning, obviously, having the fact that he got the job, I'm sure he was pretty insistent that he's he's the life lifelong guy here. For uh, you know, he's not going to leave for another school. Plus, he was born in Missouri. I don't think he would leave for a, a school in that area. So I do think that uh, Dan Lanning won't end up leaving. But I've I've said that the same thing with Mario Cristobal before. I thought about that. I thought about Cristobal when we were having this conversation because at one point, like, but here's the thing with Cristobal. Like, didn't we always know that if Miami called, 
Crystal Ball was going to try to go home. Like, we always kind of knew that. And Willie Taggart, like, it didn't surprise anybody when Florida State called and offered. Like, he left. Like, we could be mad at Willie Taggart. I think we have the we have a right to feel like, you know, he wasn't forthcoming with his plans. But in the end, um, all kinda, we all kind of understand, like, okay, he went home. He took $30 million. This is the game coaches play. I think Jonathan Smith is wired a little differently. And I think Dan Lanning, given his upbringing, might be wired a little differently. The 5 at 5 is coming up. We've got the five biggest stories going on in sports. The five most important biggest stories. All coming up top of the hour. you got the bald-faced truth. Appreciate that you're here for the ride. We're going into the happy hour. Uh, on Thursday and Friday, I will be broadcasting from the great state of Georgia. Atlanta, Georgia. Site for Saturday's game. Oregon and Georgia playing. <laughs> B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the Bald Face Truth. I got the five biggest stories going on in sports. The five most magnificent, incredible things going on. Five things you need to know about. Going to make you smarter around the dinner table. That's what the show aims to do. Appreciate that you're out there listening to it or listening via the podcast, whatever the case. I wrote today at johnconzano.com about Jonathan Smith, the Oregon State football coach. I went back and listened to his introductory news conference. Late in 2017, Jonathan Smith hired in the wake of Gary Anderson's flameout. Never forget it. Gary Anderson, you know, longtime listeners of this show. We had him on multiple times. A little bit of promise, a little uptick. Won himself a Civil War football game. Mark Helfrich against Gary Anderson. You guys don't remember this because you weren't here. But during that rivalry week that Gary Anderson and Mark Helfrich were coaching against each other, Helfrich eventually got fired after... The end of the season. And frankly, it was, might have been that Civil War football game that got Helfrich. It might have been Washington putting a million points on Oregon. Who knows? Uh, it might have been Mark Helfrich being too slow to go to Justin Herbert uh, in the end. But Helfrich and Gary Anderson came on this show as coaches do throughout the season. And, but they came on during that rivalry week on the same day, on the same segment. And neither one of them knew that the other was coming in to be part of that segment. I called it the Civil War debate. And we got Mark Helfrich on line one, and we got Gary Anderson on line two. And I brought him onto the show, and I surprised them by putting them both on the air at the same time. Good idea or bad idea, guys? Um, I, <laughs> I kind of think... I think uh, it's good for radio. I don't know that I would do it just because I'd be afraid that they would just hang up and not want to talk to you. But at the mm. same time, like they're not going to do that. I, I, probably a good idea. I'd say good idea. Yeah, I, I think it's fun. You know, it it sounds like they were good sports about it. Mm. No, which Gary one? Anderson took it was worse? A, Gary Anderson was a good sport. Oh wow! Gary Anderson laughed, and he went, "Okay, I'll do it." Mark Helfrich. I don't think Mark Helfrich was mad about it. But he was uncomfortable with it. He he didn't expect it. And 
And anybody who's been around Hal Pritchard, maybe even saw him during those seasons, knows guy was a really good football coach. Like, he was a really good quarterback coach, offensive coordinator, maybe a good play caller, great football mind, um, nice guy to talk with one-on-one, but he didn't do well in front of the room. Well, and he, I was yeah. going to say, yeah, it's just like this job. Like, you want to be prepared, right? And so it sounds like he was very prepared. He was ready to answer some of the you know, the cookie-cutter questions that he thought he was going to get. And then he gets thrown this curveball of, hey, it's a double interview right now. Yes. He didn't like it. And he wasn't ready for it, and he didn't like it. And I could tell he was just a little short with me while we were on air. And then later I found out he was like, you know, hey, man, you know, didn't expect that, didn't, <laughs> didn't know. But – I was having fun with it, like, because it happened to be, I think we were in an election year, too, and I put it as a debate. Like, basically, this is, you know, our Civil War debate. We're talking about November of an election year, Oregon and Oregon State playing a football game. But anyways, uh, the bottom line being, I learned something about both guys in that in that interview, and I think the re- the listeners heard it. Helfrich was just not comfortable with the unexpected and maybe having to you know, call an audible while on air. And Gary Anderson, while he was comfortable with it, in the end, I think, you know, we, we, we heard a guy that was wrestling a little bit with with his future and his assistant coaches. And, uh, you know, neither one of those guys lasted much longer uh, to the chagrin of uh, their both fan bases. But, um, you know, I, I kind of feel like if Helfrich had – Helfrich could have saved himself. Like, I think what he needed was he needed someone to sit down with him and just go, look, you got to warm up. You got to loosen up. You got to be more likable. Part of this job, like it or not, is, you know, when things get in trouble, and I think coaches sometimes do this, when, when you don't win games on the field, you better have something to lean into. You better be a guy that uh, has got good relationships with the media or the fan base just adores or has some key boosters in your corner. And that's where Helfrich really fell apart. He, he wasn't close enough with Phil Knight. He didn't have warm relationships with any media members. He was um, not great in that setting. And he was focused mostly on the X's and O's of football. And Gary Anderson just flat imploded. I mean, we saw him go sideways, and I was in contact with him throughout that season, that season at Oregon State, where, you know, he was texting me and saying, you know, these assistant coaches, I can't trust them, and, you know, they're not, um, you know, I'm not going to go out this way. And I eventually, later in the year, published some of the text messages with his blessing, and then he freaked out because he was like, I didn't know you meant those messages. And so... (laughs) Um, he freaked out about it, but it, in the end, I mean, it's really how he felt. He felt like he had hi- he'd made some bad hires and had some guys that, you know, there was a lot of infighting going on in the staff. And so in the end, I guess I'm left going, you know, when Mario Cristobal told us all those times how hardworking he was and how he got to the office at 4 o'clock in the morning, I think he was telling us that in case they didn't win games. I, I'm hardworking. It's not, it's not for lack of trying. And I think coaches do that stuff all the time until they get proof of performance. And then they relax a little bit. And they're like, like Kyle Whittingham doesn't care. He just shows up with long hair riding a Harley. Doesn't care. But there's a lot of other guys in the league, I think, that are really concerned with what they say and how it comes off. And, and they have to be careful about it. Let's do the five at five. It's the five biggest stories going on. The five at five. 
Jimmy Garoppolo back in San Francisco and Kyle Shanahan talking about it today. He called it shocking that Jimmy G would come back, but he also called it a win-win for the 49ers and for Garoppolo. It was just a month ago that the 49ers, GM John Lynch, Coach Kyle Shanahan, started talking about Jimmy Garoppolo maybe coming back. They reworked his contract, and they got it done. The Niners feel good about Garoppolo being back. I think it's a little strange, but I also feel like in today's NFL, in a world where Trey Lance feels like he might be the solution, but you're not sure, having Jimmy Garoppolo on your bench isn't the worst-case scenario. There have been some examples of teams that have gone to the Super Bowl under this kind of scenario. Backup quarterbacks stepping in, Nick Foles being the last of them in uh, Philadelphia. But there are other cases, including Tom Brady replacing Drew Bledsoe once upon a time. So I think it works for the Niners. I think it works for Garoppolo. I think it doesn't get weird unless Trey Lance struggles and the Niners are reluctant to put Jimmy Garoppolo on the field. But that is number one in our five at five. Number two in the five at five, Rachel Richardson, Duke volleyball player. Man, a sad, sad story last week is a Duke volleyball player recounted that a series of racial slurs were, were hurled at her during a match last week at BYU. It turned into a national news story. But she posted a statement to Twitter on Sunday saying, you know, the BYU, by the way, has banned that fan from all athletic venues. Zero tolerance. But she supported BYU and said that, that you know, look, it was the atmosphere in the student section. The guy that was eventually banned was recording things on his phone, was trying to make her uncomfortable. BYU won the match three sets to one. But, um, you know, she praised BYU Athletic Director Tom Holmo who basically apparently came to talk with her at the team hotel the next morning. She called him one of the most genuine people she's ever met. Good on BYU for getting it right in the wake of what was an ugly incident. I'm glad BYU banned the fan as well. Number three in the five at five, John Will Wall, Clippers guard, says he contemplated suicide during the pandemic. He was dealing with injury. He was dealing with family tragedies. 31-year-old guard joined the Clippers this summer, eager to return to form. She played just 40 games over the last three years. He said it was one of the darkest places he's ever been. John Wall, I think talking openly about this can help some people. Cameron Smith and five others have left the PGA Tour for LIV Golf. This is number four in our five at five. They talked today about why. Smith's 29. He's the number two player in the world golf rankings. He's joined by a bunch of other players that are not as highly ranked, but he's basically saying that, you know, the best and the brightest are going to LIV golf. He's from Australia. It's the biggest loss for the PGA Tour. He's in the prime of his career, just won the players in March, and his first major, the U.S. Open, Six-time winner, popular with fans. It's a big loss for the PGA. Finally, the fifth thing in our 5 at 5, Chip Towers, Atlanta Journal-Constitution, joined us earlier on the show today. 
talked about the Oregon-Georgia game, how it's setting up. I asked him about the physicality of Georgia. He's at practice. He watches Oregon. He watches Georgia. How different is the physicality? Chip Towers says it is noticeable. But he says Oregon's getting there. Oregon's got great linebackers. Georgia's got great size on the defensive line. I think it's going to be difficult for Oregon to overcome, but I think Oregon will stick around in this game. That's it. That's the five things in the five at five. Let's recount them, guys. Uh, the size differential between Georgia and Oregon, how much of a factor is that in Saturday's game? Um, I think that it's not as big as he made it out to be, right? Like, I think it's a definitely a factor, but I think Oregon has recruited well enough that they should be able to compete with the size. I think for Oregon right now, for me, the big question is just Bo Nix, right? I mean, I, I've seen Bo Nix play at Auburn. I know all the accolades that he got in high school coming to, or- or coming to Auburn and then how people wanted him in the transfer portal when he went to Oregon. I just haven't seen Bo Nix, and I don't, just don't trust him to be very good. And so that's my problem is if Bo Nix is starting, how many points can Oregon actually score against that Georgia defense? That's my biggest concern for Oregon. To, to me, the two strongest aspects of this Oregon football team this year is the O-line and the front seven. So I, I don't think the physicality is as big of a concern. I touched on it earlier. I think I'm a little bit more scared if I'm an Oregon fan of the skill guys, you know, and, you know, potential turnovers with Bo Nix. Not as much of the physicality on both lines. I think it's going to be interesting to see which way the pol- the piles are falling. I think if Oregon's offensive line... Uh, can hang in there. I, I think uh, they'll run the football a little bit, take some pressure off Bo Nix. Secondarily, guys, um, you know, let's talk about Jimmy Garoppolo. Is this a distraction? Is this a problem that Trey Lance has got a highly paid, highly compensated backup on his shoulder? No, because it was very clearly stated that Trey Lance is the guy in San Francisco. Kyle Shanahan said so as much. And so I think it's just, I think it's more of a Nate Sudfeld problem. Right? He was so bad in the preseason that the 49ers said, you know, we need like an insurance policy. We can't go with Brock Purdy or Nate Sudfeld. We need someone just in case, like you said, Trey Lance is as good as we think he is or he gets hurt. At least we have Jimmy Garoppolo, who we know knows the system and can be very successful in the system. So I don't think it at all. I think Trey Lance is the guy. He knows he's the guy, and he has all the confidence in the world from all the coaching staff in the front office. I go the other way. I actually think this is kind of a distraction. It's like, uh, gosh, it's like, I'm trying to think of like an ex-girlfriend analogy um, with like the new the new boyfriend around. Uh, it's just uh, it's kind of a weird deal. Like Jimmy Garoppolo, he quarterbacked the team last year. Now it's Trey Lance, and Garoppolo like wasn't in. He wasn't around like at the end of this this training camp because they thought they were going to trade him. And like you said earlier on the show, John, you know, like Jimmy Garoppolo said goodbye to the Bay Area, and now he's just back. I think it's a it's kind of a weird deal, but I do think it's good for their football team uh, in terms of wins and losses. I think that the Niners are in trouble and know it. And, look, I'm just going to go on a, on a small sample size. This is a great defense. This is a team that's been in the Super Bowl recently. It's a team that plays in a tough division with the Rams and the Cardinals. And I think that they're having offensive line problems. And, I, you know, anybody who watched their last preseason game knows that the offensive line didn't look great. And so I wonder how much John Lynch, how much Kyle Shanahan watched – the uh, last preseason game and went, we're going to need more than one quarterback. Is that part of this equation? I think it is. And I think that they couldn't trust Brock Purdy, who's a rookie, and who they kept over Nate Sudfeld as the number three quarterback. I just think they wanted someone else uh, that they could trust. And no better option than Jimmy Grappler, who was actually on the team. And then they restructured the contract 
So, you know, he has a chance where if he does get to play, he's going to make more money. I think it's a win-win for everybody. I also win, win. think there's yeah. no home. There's really no home for Jimmy Garoppolo. Because How is that possible? Well, here's the thing. So he's not good enough to lead a contender. You know, I think he was a huge liability on the Niners last year. But then there's so many teams in this era of the NFL, like the Seahawks, um, who just want to lose some games this year, and they want to they want to be able to get a star quarterback in the draft next year. And Jimmy Garoppolo doesn't fit that either. So I think that's why it took a while for Baker Mayfield to find a home too. I think uh, you know if you're a middle of the road quarterback, there's there's less of a home. They either want really good ones or they want really bad ones to help uh, help lose games. Like it, I think it hurt that Tom, like Tom Brady's in front of the guy. So when he never beat out Tom Brady or never challenged him seriously for the job. We all went, well, it was Tom Brady. So by the time he gets to San Francisco, look, he took them to a Super Bowl. Like, they had a really good team, save for, you know, a couple of throws, maybe one pass in that Super Bowl. The Niners win the Super Bowl, and Jimmy Garoppolo, it's a whole other story. But I keep thinking about, you know, did, you know, what did the Patriots know that the Niners didn't? And maybe it was that the guy's limited. Like, you know, you could, I think you could win a Super Bowl with him, but I think you're going to have to win it playing defense and running the football, which is what they do. Yeah, I mean, they made the uh, NFC Championship game a season ago against the Rams, lose by three in Los Angeles. So they're right there. I think, you know, that's the thing is their roster is really good, John. And so if they would have kept Garoppolo, they would have had a really high floor again because that's what it is. But I think they want to have that untapped potential with Trey Lance, and they spent all that capital to get him. They kind of had to make this move, especially nowadays in the NFL. I mean, if you're not if you're not paying off and you know, your top five pick with the first couple of years, you know, why were they going to pay you that much money? So I think they it was a move they had to make to go to Trey Lance, and they wanted to trade Garoppolo if they could, like Sean said. But there was just wasn't anybody out there that was in need of a guy who's a middle of the road quarterback who's not really going to be you know a game changer, right? Like that's just not his game. And everybody's looking at the draft for the, you know, the unknown quarterback or the quarterback that's going to put the team on their shoulders and take it to the Super Bowl. But you know, you look at Super Bowl winners. Yeah, you've got guys like Patrick Mahomes and Tom Brady in there, clearly capable of doing that. But you have a whole bunch of other. There's another class of quarterbacks that have played over the years, from Jeff Hostetler to Jim McMahon. Uh, you know, to Trent Dilfer, to Joe Flacco. There have been guys who Jared have Goff. won. Yeah, Jared Goff even. Like, like the Rams won the Super Bowl because they have a great defensive line and they had an offense that did enough. And is Jimmy Garoppolo, I think it's a little full skull because I do think Garoppolo is good enough to win a Super Bowl. I think he is. Well, I mean, the question would be like, if you're Atlanta, who would you rather see who's got some skills, Marcus Mariota or Jimmy Garoppolo, right? Because they're still, mm-hmm. they were in that spot where they need a quarterback long-term, but maybe they still have something in a Mariota or a Garoppolo, and they chose Mariota at two years, $18 million, when Garoppolo was making all that money until he restructured his contract. I think the contract had a lot to do with it as well. Teams yeah. didn't want to invest that much into him. I don't know, man. I, I think you're right. I think he could win a Super Bowl, but he has to have you know the perfect team around him, which he almost did against the Kansas City Chiefs when they lose by one score. I thought is, Pittsburgh yeah. made a lot of sense. Mm. I, yeah. You know, Trubisky and uh, Kenny Pickett, I thought Garoppolo, that's a team that wants to win. I thought Pittsburgh was going to be where he landed, but uh, apparently not. He's got a no trade. He's got a, a no tag clause. It'd be interesting to see. Do you guys think he starts any games this season? No. No. I, I, I don't want to predict an injury. I, I think Trey Lance is going to be good. I think he does. I, I, I don't think they would have gone that route if they were sure. About so Trey Lance. that's an indictment on Trey Lance. You're not yeah. sure on him. Yeah, I mean, I think if they were in love with Trey Lance and they felt like the offensive line was good, why do they do this deal? Like they, you know, 
I, I think they tell him they'd probably negotiate a buyout and they cut him loose, you know, or they trade him for something. I, I just, I, it's a win-win. They're selling it as a win-win. I don't think it's going to be a distraction because I don't think he's that kind of guy. He's proven that. But I feel like there's more, you know, there's, he's a little bit of a safety net for the Niners right now. They know who he is. They don't know who Trey Lance is. Leave it here. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano. Peter Sampson is up next with the pulse from 6 to 7 on 750 The Game. Peter Sampson coming up top of the hour on the pulse with Peter Sampson. Guys, we're all about college football right now. I've been I've been waiting all summer for this, and you know I, I know we had games last weekend, but we didn't really have games because we didn't have the Pac-12 games to go through. I'm excited about this weekend's games, but outside of the ones we've talked about, outside of Oregon versus uh, Georgia, and outside of Boise State, Oregon State at Research Stadium, and outside of Utah and Florida uh, in the swamp, it in the Pac-12 conference, we've got some other games I want to talk about we haven't even touched on. Is there anything at all, any interest in seeing what Stanford looks like in their opener, even though it's Colgate and it's David Shaw coming off a 3-9 and nine season? Any interest there, guys, at all? Yeah, for me, there is. You know, I was very impressed with David Shaw at Pac-12 Media Day. We kind of talked about that a little bit. I feel like Stanford has a lot more talent than we think that they do, right? And David Shaw and Stanford have been down for a little bit. I want to see if they can, you know, obviously I think they'll handle Colgate but they play USC in that week, too. So it would be nice to see if Stanford comes out and they're on a roll in that week one because uh, I think they could have they could be a quiet team that could get up to six, seven wins if everything breaks right for them. Yeah, I want to check out Tanner McKee. You know, I think there's a lot of hype around their, their quarterback and that he's a potential first-round pick next year. So no matter who the opponent is, it would be, it'd be nice to watch him play. There's talk about him being the, the pick among or among Pac-12 quarterbacks, him being the, the guy with the biggest pro upside. So I'm interested to see him. And I know Stanford fans are really frustrated with David Shaw. That said, we're not going to learn anything you know about Stanford in this game against Colgate, but I think it'll be good to just see Stanford on the field uh, getting a win. And, uh, you know, there are some other games, too, uh, you know, in the evening that are interesting. Idaho goes to Washington State. Anything for you guys in that Washington State-Idaho game? No, I mean, I just I want to see Cam Ward, but again, we want I want to see him against good competition. I know he's going to dominate Idaho. I'm not worried about that. So nothing really in that game too much. I do just want to see Cam Ward play uh, on this level, just you know, because of all the hype that's been around him. Yeah, I'm curious what the offense is going to look like. Are they going to be as air raidy as they have been in years past? Are they going to run the ball a little bit this year? I think we'll get a little bit of an idea in this first week one game. Yeah, Jake Dickert's told me the the Coug raid will feature a run game. How much we will find out. I'm just interested to see Cameron Ward. I think he has a chance to be the best statistical quarterback in the conference. And that's a conference that's going to have Caleb Williams in it. And it's going to have, you know, Bo Nix. And it's going to have Cam Rising at Utah. I think Caleb Williams is going to put up big numbers at Washington State. I don't know that we'll get kind of an inkling of how good Washington State can be in this Idaho game. Because I don't think Idaho has the horses. But... I think we're going to get to see the offense a little bit and see them uh, kind of run around and uh, put a, put the ball in the air. Washington in the late game, guys, uh, 7.30 kickoff Saturday night. Uh, they will host Kent State. 
I am uh, I'm interested in seeing Washington play this year. It's not this game that I'm into, but I think Kalen DeBoer is going to fix some things, and I think Washington's schedule is really favorable. I think they could be an eight-win team. Yeah, I, I love the Kalen DeBoer hire. I thought that was a really good hire by University of Washington. And then bringing in Michael Penix Jr., you know, a guy who he has familiarity with. And as long as he stays healthy, he has proven to be a good quarterback in the Big Ten. So I don't see any question why if he's not healthy, he can't be really good in the Pac-12, maybe even all-conference performer. So I'm with you, John. Like, I'm really excited uh, for this Washington team. I don't necessarily know if they're back yet, uh, but they do play Michigan State later on in the year in Seattle. I would be way more excited about that game. So I do want to see just how they look. Uh, but, you know, I have a lot of faith in Kalen's board that he's going to bring back this program a little bit. I, I think that uh, he's got a shot. I think that, you know, we're betting on the idea, if you're a Washington fan, you're betting on the idea that Jimmy Lake really was not good as a head coach and that they underachieved by maybe a couple of games that they should have won last year. And then you're betting on the idea that Michael Penix Jr. stays healthy. And Washington's schedule does the rest. It's, it's a relatively soft Pac-12 schedule meaning that Washington gets the benefit of not having USC and Utah. And they only have to play Oregon among the top three teams picked by media. And But you know, media might be wrong, but at least at face value, it looks to me like, you know, somebody asked me today, who wins more games, Washington State or Washington? I said, I think it's going to be Washington, but I think it's going to be close. But I, th- I picked Washington. What do you guys think? Yeah, I think Washington. Uh, you know, John, I'm going to throw this at you. Do you think there's a chance that Washington, you know, with that schedule – could they sneak in to maybe being a sneak team to get to the Pac-12 title game? I kind of think there is. There is a chance because I do. I think that highly of DeBoer having that relationship with uh, Michael Penix Jr. Let's do this. During the commercial break, I want you guys to look at the Pac-12 standings. And I want you to pick every team that you possibly think could make the title game. Leave out the non-contenders without a doubt. And let's compare lists after the break. Because I think that there are more teams this year, I think you're right, Stephen, in that there are some, some dark horses this year that could get in them, and I, think, and I think Oregon State might be one of them. Leave it here. you got the BFT. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Who are the contenders and who are the pretenders when it comes to the Pac-12 conference? Uh, They haven't played games yet this season, but I want to talk about this because it kind of came up, guys. When we look at the Pac-12 conference football teams, who has a chance to play in the championship game? We're going to draw lines on uh, this segment, and we're going to determine who's a pretender and who's not. But, guys, let's just start with Arizona State. They will play the first Pac-12 game of the week. This will be uh, a Thursday game at home against Northern Arizona. Is Arizona State a team that you can build a case for getting to Vegas? No. Um, no. I'm going to go no. I don't see it. They're such a mystery team, but I just I don't believe in what – Herm Edwards, I I just, I'm not buying Herm Edwards stock right now. And I just, uh, they have so much new to their team this year. I just, I don't see it. uh, I'm trying, I'm trying to convince myself maybe because the the schedule isn't great or it's pretty easy, right? They, all their, all their road games 
at Stanford, at Colorado, at Washington State, at Arizona, then at USC. I mean, the road games aren't necessarily that difficult. So if Emory Jones really clicks with that team, I mean, maybe, but I I think no. I think Sean's right. I, I, I feel like there's a scenario where they could get there. Let's say the transfer quarterback is outstanding. Let's say this team pulls together. Um, I, I think there's a scenario where they could get there, but you're right. Sean's right. I don't trust him. It comes down to a trust issue. How about Colorado? No. I'm a no. No, definitely no. How about UCLA? Yeah, definitely. Especially with that schedule. Uh, I know it doesn't really matter for conference standings, but the fact that they kind of cupcake their way into the season, I think will help them a lot. I, 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 you know, I might even pick them to make the title. Yeah, I, I'm with Sean. I think UCLA has a chance during Thompson Robinson back again. Road at Oregon, at Colorado, at ASU, at Cal. Again, the road schedule is pretty manageable. They're a very experienced team. I, I trust Chip Kelly. I think he's a good coach still. I know there's some people that may not think that, but I think he's a great coach as well. I think I think they got a legit chance. I think they do too, and I don't want to like him. I look at Chip Kelly's record over this last uh, cycle, and I think you know it's not impressive. But they have, you know, Dorian Thompson Robinson back. They there was an eight win team a year ago. If he hadn't posted eight wins a year ago, I would say no way in hell. Do I think they're going to get there? I wouldn't bet on them, but they're in that pool of teams that could get there. I'm putting UCLA in that pool. You guys are as well. Arizona, it's a no for me. You guys, no. To know, but I, I kind of like them against San Diego State this weekend. But yeah, yeah, no for making the conference championship. How about Oregon? Yep. Yeah. Definitely. Same. I mean, we talked about it. I mean, they're. I think they're still even over USA. I think they're probably the most talented team in the conference. And so with that, you know, Marty Cristobal wasn't a great in-game coach. They still won ten games. So I think Dan Lanning can do the same type of thing uh, down in Eugene this year. I think it's. I think Oregon's a yes as well. I think you know it would not be a surprise to anybody to see Oregon in that game. How about Cal? Justin Wilcox and Cal. I don't see it. I I honestly think as much as I like Justin Wilcox, I I don't really love their roster, and I I honestly think this is the worst team in the North. I I, I don't see it with them this year. They'll have the defense. What if the quarterback can play? They got a Purdue transfer playing at quarterback. If if the kid can play, are they are they a chance to be a sleeper? I think if he can play, it is um, because I liked Cal when they had Jake Garbers, and then the COVID year kind of they kind of underperformed that year. I think, and I love Justin Wilcox as a coach, so I think they're always going to outperform my expectations. If the if the plumber kid can play the quarterback, I think they are a dark horse, a real dark horse. But I I wouldn't bet it, and I definitely for this exercise, I would say no, I wouldn't put him in there. But you know, I think they could be surprising teams. I uh, I don't think they can get there. I think they're interesting if he can play. I think they're always going to win win a game or two that they shouldn't win, but they're not a contender to win at all. USC guys, USC in that conversation. Yeah, definitely. With all that talent. Yeah, I mean it's just such, it's an unknown of how it's going to all click. But with Lincoln Riley and Caleb Williams, man, yeah, of course I think they're they're right in the thick of it. I think offensively they are. I wonder about their ability to stop the run or run the ball, but I'll put him in there because I, I think you guys are right. I think there's talent, and there's a big mystery. Around, there's some aura and mystery around them. Utah, definitely. We're all going to say yes about Utah. Let's go to Stanford. Stanford in the title game. I'm going to go no, and I just made a case last time that I like Stanford. I think they're going to have a good year. I just don't think that they can get to the title game, right? And I think that's just because the schedule is a little hard, a little tough, I thought. 
Uh, they're at Washington, at Oregon, at UCLA, at Utah. I think that's just going to be a little too tough of a road, but I think they can have a really good season, and they may be a team that can upset one of these top teams to get another team into that Pac-12 title game. Yeah, their over-under for the season is four and a half. So for us to say they'd make they can make the Pac-12 title would be a little bit crazy. Their schedule is just insane. Like uh, Steven said, I like their roster, I like their coach, but yeah, it's at Utah. Then they have Notre Dame and BYU um, clustered in. You know, Notre Dame's right in the middle of their season. BYU, it's just such a hard schedule. I feel like this team's going to break down and they're not going to be consistent. I I feel like in the end, it's David Shaw trying to come back from three and nine to get to like eight wins, not to get to 10. And that's why I don't, I don't consider Stanford a contender there, but I won't be surprised if Stanford wins eight games because I think that Shaw's a good enough coach to get there, and with a quarterback and tight ends like that, I think there's a chance. Yeah, and they return 10 guys on offense. That schedule, John, is just so brutal, though. I mean, just looking at the, the easiest Pac-12 game is either at Oregon State or, I mean, at home against Oregon State or at home against Washington State. Like, that's not an easy schedule. Those are, the like, hardest those, are the, those are the easiest games, yeah. All right, guys, let's move on to Washington State. Are they a contender? No, it's a no for me. Um, I just don't trust Jake Dickert yet as the head coach to see him without seeing Cam Ward yet. I, I just can't put him in that category yet. I like Washington State a lot. Yeah. I, I honestly might pick them to be the second best team in the North, mm-hmm. um, and I'm not necessarily penciling it on Oregon to be the first. I, I can't think. I don't think they can be the best team in the North. I do think they can make the uh, Pac-12 title. Cameron Ward's just such a wild card. Like he, like you said, he could probably be, you know, if, on his best day, he could be the best quarterback in this conference. I, I think they can make it. They have a favorable schedule too. They, I think they could get there, but I think it would take. A few twists. Um, I think they're going to have to get a great season at award. I think their offensive line is going to have to be surprisingly good. I think it's the one area where they have concerns. But um, I, I kind of like the way they're made up, and I like Cameron Ward in that offense an awful lot. I'll put them among, you know, if we're picking six teams to get there, I think they're one of the six that could get there. How about Oregon State? See, I, I would pick Oregon State over Washington State, and they're kind of in the same category, right? We're talking about the six teams. They would be my sixth team if I'm really considering. I think Oregon State has potential, right? And, and I've said this before, with Jonathan Smith as the head coach, the floor on the offense I think is so high. I think their offense is always going to be so good, and they've been proven to have a great running game. They're going to be able to run, to run down the throat of a lot of different teams. It's can the defensive line stand up? Can the defensive backfield stand up? And I have a lot of faith in Jonathan Smith. I think that Oregon State has a reasonable schedule. I think that they could get to nine wins and something wacky happens. Maybe they are in that Pac-12 title game. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead, Sean. I think the first half of their season's tough, right? Because it's not only Boise and Fresno State, which, again, doesn't matter for the conference standings. But then back-to-back-to-back-to-back weeks, USC at Utah at Stanford, home for Washington State. Like, that's that's really tough in the middle of their season. But I, I, I go back to what Jonathan Smith said to you at Pac-12 Media Day. He said, we want to win 12 games. We want to go to Vegas. What other year has he said that in his tenure so far? So clearly he feels pretty good about his squad. I Yeah, I think... I think Oregon State can get there. I think, you know, it would take some other things. I think I happen to think this Pac-12 season is going to be Utah, and then I think it's going to be a bunch of teams below Utah just beating each other up. I won't be surprised if the second-place team in the Pac-12 is like a three-loss or a four-loss team. I think, I think it has that potential this season to have a bunch of teams sitting in the middle, you know, just over 500, just under 500. I think, they're, you know, we're going to see a large pool of – teams that are in that category 
Uh, finally, guys, Washington, can they get there? I think that they can. I, I, I have a lot of faith in Caitlin DeBoer. Like I said, I think the talent is still there. Uh, you know, the schedule not necessarily super tough for Washington. I mean, it's a little tough. They play at Oregon. I think that's going to be a tough one. But like you said, it's wacky things happen. I think they have enough talent, enough coaching to sneak them in there. Maybe they are at 9-3 and three or 8-4. and four, uh, But I think that they can get there. I don't know. I'm on the fence. I only like it because of the schedule. We talked about the schedule earlier. They avoid USC and Utah. That is so favorable to them. Uh, but I, I'm still not sure I'm a believer in DeBoer's first year. I, I, to answer your earlier question that I didn't get a chance to answer, I like Washington State more than Washington this year. Um, but I still think because of their schedule, they can maybe get eight wins and slide in there. So if we had to pick six teams, because this is what's going to make it hard, because I think we all picked like seven or eight teams that could have a shot to get there, which says a lot about the Pac-12 conference this season. If you have to narrow it to six, I'm going to pick my six, and you guys, you guys pick your six, but... I'm going to go UCLA, Oregon is two, USC is three, Utah is four. So I can only pick two more. I'm going to pick Oregon State, and I'm going to pick Washington as my potential six to get to the title game. Steven, where do you stand? Yeah, my six are the exact same as you. I think those six, it's USC, Utah, Oregon, UCLA, Washington, Oregon State. Oregon State would be my sixth in my sixth spot, and I have to decide between them and Arizona State. I think it's close between those two. And like I said, I think it has something really wacky would have to happen for one of those teams to get in. But I think Oregon State, uh, I trust them a little more than Arizona State, so I would put them slightly ahead of them. So same six as you, John. I'm going to do the same five with Oregon State in there and then the four obvious ones. I'm going to go Washington State over Washington. I just think Cameron Ward gives Washington State an upside that I don't really see with Washington. I think Cameron Ward's going to be better than Michael Penix this year. And they were just so good after all that drama at the beginning of last year. Like the second half of the year, the the Cougars were super good. Um, I, I could see them winning eight to nine games, really surprising people this year. I think it's going to be a great season. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I think on a week-to-week basis, we're not going to know which way is up and which way is down. Some parting thoughts coming up. If you are listening on 750 The Game, Peter Sampson and The Pulse, still ahead. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzana on 750 The Game. Well, the LIV golf event will not be returning to Pumpkin Ridge next year. I am told by multiple sources that Pumpkin Ridge not going to be part of the LIV series. Uh, It looks like Escalani Golf, who owns the Pumpkin Ridge golf course, is going to take uh, those events to other Escalante courses. Now, I don't think it's because... It was upset about the politics. I don't think it was upset about the outcry from some of the members. I don't think it was upset about the controversy. I think Escalante Golf is moving it to another venue because it wants improvements at its other venues. That's what it got out of this deal. So take it for what it is. I think if you are somebody who is happy to see Escalante Golf announce that it will be uh, holding these events elsewhere, you probably celebrated. I know some of the members out at Pumpkin Ridge and some of the employees there celebrated the fact that they felt like uh, it was, uh, you know, too hot. They liked getting away from it. 
I think if you are somebody who really enjoyed the event, and I'm going to say this, like full disclosure, I had some friends who went out there who said, you know, they were, they were against the event being there. They went out there to check it out, okay? Call them hypocrites if you want, but they got free tickets. They went out and check it out. They came back and they told me, look, it took a long time to get into the event, but they said it was really festive. It was really well run. Everybody was happy that it was cool to see some of these major golfers up close. Um, doesn't change my mind. It's not something I'm going to go watch. I don't want to support it. I don't want me being there to be construed of me, as me supporting it, even as a media member. But um, it was interesting to me to hear from people who said, you know what? The event wasn't bad. What do you guys make of that? Not coming back. <sighs> I mean, I don't think it's a big deal. It's not a big deal for me that it's not coming back. I wasn't going to go anyways. It's such a it's a weird it's a weird subject, right? Because on one hand, I understand that these guys want to get the money, and if I'm in that situation, I'm a golfer. I don't know that I could say no if I'm getting life changing money like this. But at the same time, for like what it stands for, I, it's yeah. tough, man. I I really have hard feelings about this. Uh, just about this topic. I, I really don't know what I would do if I was put in that situation. I'm lucky I'm not a bad, I'm a bad golfer, so I'm not in that situation. Yeah. Do you uh, respect the guys who say, I did it for the money versus the guys who try to like rationalize it or justify it? I I mean, I guess. I respect it a little more, but it's not that I really lost. I didn't lose their respect because they went to that tour anyways. Uh, so, you know, I understand like they all went there for the money, whether they say it or not. I, it, I think it's a little, I guess it's, I respect it more like Harold Varner the third came out and said, you know, it was for the money and it's going to change my life, you know, just family wealth. And it's not going to be for my kids. It's going to be for my kids' kids. And it's going to have all that wealth. So I, I think that's cool in that situation. So I guess it's a little more respectful, but I, I didn't really lose respect for anybody that went there because I understand. I understand what they're doing. I think, Sean. yeah, I, I'm trying to think about this. You know, in, in life, like if, if you had a friend that took a job and you asked why he took that job, and he said, it pays really well. Like, I, I honestly took it for the money. Would you have respect for that person? Or would you be like, really? That's why you took the job? No. I, I mean, I think it would depend. I think it's a conversation. Like, if the conversation is, you know, I'll put myself in that guy's shoes. All right. So, um, hey, I I really needed to do this. Um, and here's why. And they lay out the financial, you know, impact to their family and whatnot. Like, it helps you understand. helps you empathize. I mean, I think it's one of the great human traits, empathy, right? Like, like we all could be more empathetic. We all should strive to be more empathetic. And it doesn't mean you need to be an apologist for somebody else, but to understand, as Stephen was saying, to kind of understand what that person in those shoes is going through is, is, a, uh, is an important and valuable trait. That said, some of these guys that were making tens of millions of dollars on the PGA Tour that traded that for hundreds of millions of dollars on the LIV tour. Um, I get it, but I also am going, like, maybe that decision would have been a little better because there's a there's a price where, you know, I think a lot of people would sell out. But it to me, it, it, it depends upon the stakes. And, and, you know, I was hearing from a lot of people who were personally impacted by – crimes that the Saudi government had either perpetrated or been involved with or 9-11 or um, the case of, you know, a, a student in Oregon who got run down by a Saudi national and then the Saudi government helped that person escape and not face charges. Like I was hearing a lot of that. It would be really hard for me 
you know, if I were making tens of millions of dollars to sell out with that kind of noise in the back of my head, that's just me. But I get it, like, with some of the guys that were struggling to make money on the tour that were facing, like, hey, I'm missing the cut. There's no, you know, there's guaranteed money on the LIV tour. Like, all of a sudden, they go from a question mark when it comes to their earnings to tens of millions of dollars. All of a sudden, those guys, I think it's a lot harder for those guys. Yeah, I mean, and you talk about just the guys who were making money before, you know, perfect example is just Phil Mickelson, right? Like, he talked about his gambling losses that he had, and now he's going to be making all this money, and it seems like, well, you know, you had all this money, and now you lost all of it by gambling, and so you're going to make it back by joining the Live Golf Tour. So, like, yeah, I don't, I don't necessarily respect that decision because he knows exactly what he's doing. Like, he needs to get that money, but, you know, I think you're right. Like, it would just be hard, like, Deshaun's question of, would you, you know, do you still respect someone that says they did that took the money for a job? I think I, I do. Like that's what a lot of people just look at as your job is to make as much money as possible. And so that's what this Live Golf Tour has done. And you know, it has made it so the PGA Tour is changing their ways and they're offering more money. So there has been some good that's come out of it to the PGA Tour. Um, you know, I it's just I I would love to hear guys say more often that they that doing it for the money, but I know that's just never going to be the case. So I just can't lose respect for it. And, you know, and I think it's it's a it's you know, it's a it's a tough conversation. But like I'll just speak from personal experience on this show. Like I have had uh, sponsors who have approached that want me to endorse their product or their business. And I'm not comfortable endorsing their product or business in part because I have kids. I have daughters. Uh, in, in other cases, there was one guy who had this ionized water machine that he had invented. He wanted me to endorse it. He wanted me to do commercial reads for it. And so I said, well, give me the machine. Let me check it out. And I got it. And then I used it. And then I asked a medical professional, I asked my, my, my uh, physician. I said, hey, let me tell you about this machine I'm using. Does the science of ionized water hold up? And he said, no. He said, you feel better because you're just drinking more water. It doesn't matter if it's ionized or not ionized. It's, you know, it's not, there's no science behind it. And so I went back and I said, hey, I can't endorse your product. And I did that and I felt good about it, right? But I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, like, if, if I had no other income in my life, like if I wasn't writing, if I wasn't doing a show, if I didn't have other, like it would be a little harder decision to be like that person who stands for whatever. Like, you know, I'm not like puffing my chest out here because I recognize that, like, I'm, I didn't do that endorsement, but another one will come down the pipeline, right? So I think it is harder for the golfers who were kind of on the bubble of the PGA Tour. Yeah, and I mean, or if you're just starting your own show, like, you you would have, you yes. may just take that because you need that extra money. Like, it, I think it's a yeah. tough line to cross, but it has to be, we have to go talk about it. Yeah, or you don't know any better. Like, you know, you're, you're just starting a show and you don't know any better. But I think, you know, I knew at that point, I, I asked my doctor, my doctor said, no, there's nothing to it. I went back to the guy. I said, hey, you got a great product, whatever. I'm just not comfortable endorsing it. And he was okay. Leave it here. Peter Sampson coming up. The BFT will be in Atlanta on Thursday and Friday.